There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome, welcome. Do sit down. Are you comfortable? You have been with us for more than a year in the fortress, yes? Are your studies progressing? You found fellowship with your brethren? Ah, subject six. Nice to see you again. Hope you haven't kept you waiting too long in the office today. It's just crazy busy out there. Are you thirsty? Should I ask Jeannie to get you some water? No? Excellent. Well, if you're ready, let's just get started. By now, you have heard the rumors of the garden, I presume? <laughs> the brethren are loyal, their daggers are swift, and their faith beyond question, but they gossip like uh, little girls. We shall speak more of this, but first... Let's see. Your records indicate you've been coming to this clinic for... A few months now. And you seem to be making... Wow, really good progress, which makes you a great candidate for our most um, cutting-edge therapies. But first, first, I ask you to take this from me. What is it? Well, from this earthly perspective, it is simply a tool, a pipe. But for you, it is a sacred instrument that eliminates the barriers between this world paradise. Here, hold it to your lips. Light it with the candle flame, like so, and breathe deep. Maybe you've heard of hypnosis before. Magicians making people bark like dogs, take off their clothes, that sort of thing. Well, it's more than just a stage trick. It can actually induce another state of consciousness. Let me show you. Concentrate on my voice and breathe deeply, calmly, as you sink gently into your chair. Ah, now you are ready. I spoke before of the garden. You've heard that it flows with milk and honey. And why? In paradise, such things are not forbidden. And you've heard more. You avert your eyes, but I know that it is filled with beautiful women who serve all of the needs of the faithful. Until now, you've only heard these things, but I invite you to open this door and see paradise for yourself. I see you're ready to learn the great purpose that has brought you to us. We are seeking to do nothing less than change the world, patient says. To eliminate everything that keeps humankind from achieving our full potential. From creating a new, better society. It's 
not just a specter of Soviet nukes. I'm talking about domestic threats. Fellow Americans who are standing in our way. And someone's got to do something about it. Look around. Is it not as beautiful as you dream? Go, indulge your senses. I know you can imagine how wonderful that new world could be. Go on, imagine it. Are you awake, my child? Alas, our trips to paradise are brief, but you can easily return. Simply take from me this second tool, and with it, become the instrument of the Mahdi's vengeance. The world doesn't look like that now, does it, Patient Six? It's filled with chaos and fear. But they won't let us take control of society to build a world of order where everyone knows his place. It makes you hate them, doesn't it? Yeah. So you know what you have to do. Strike down the impudent sheik who even now threatens our lands, who calls us heretics, who seeks to destroy all we have built. Now, patient six, do you feel what I'm placing in your hand? With this instrument, this pistol, you will strike down the politician who opposes our new world. And when your dagger has found its home in his breast, as the alarm is raised, drop your guard and allow his attendants to strike you down. You will hunt this man. You will find him. You will raise this weapon and fire it in his impudent face. Don't raise a hand to defend yourself. And I promise you, in that moment, you will return to the paradise you so recently enjoyed. And when their bullets rain down on you, you will smile, knowing you've done your part to build a better world. At, At my signal, you, you will go, go forth, forth from this place, conceal yourself among the crowd. You will strike suddenly, when it's least expected. expected. You won't remember anything we've said here today, and you'll do all of this in three, two, one. Wow. Shocking stuff. But that's exactly how evil forces have, for centuries, used drugs and mind control to turn ordinary human beings into ruthless, unfeeling killers with no conscience. Whether it's 12th century Syrian imams or black ops scientists in the Cold War USA, everyone knows that these manipulators have conspired to force unwitting dupes, their wills no longer their own, to commit murder upon command without question or regret. Except it turns out that what everyone knows is wrong. Yes, assassinations have been with us for millennia, and yes, they often involve a conspiracy among a tight-knit group of Confederates. In the case of Lincoln's assassination, literally Confederates. But from imagining conspiracies when the blame lies with lone actors, to implying that self-motivated assassins are actually manipulated by forces beyond their control, much of what we all assume about assassination conspiracies is woefully inaccurate. If only a podcast would set out to correct these misapprehensions. Hot dog, it turns out we have just such a podcast right here. Welcome back to The Paranoid Strain.
back, back again. Your fool's back. Tell a friend. That will be our only attempt at hip hop in this or any other episode. You're welcome. You've returned, as everyone eventually must, to the paranoid strain. Relax, you're among friends here. Sane friends. Every two months, we all convene in stately Jesuit manner to discuss the history, development, proponents, and impact of conspiracy thinking so that you can better understand why your tree trimmer, your financial advisor, and your husband's incorrigible college friend, Chip, believe in these ridiculous fucking theories. If you're just joining us, welcome. You'll be receiving your Illuminati tattoo and blood oaths in the mail in four to six weeks. I'm your host and kindly benefactor, Fearful Jesuit. We're very happy to have you. Please enjoy this episode and then try out the other wares in this Hyar podcast feed. They're mostly shows like this one, only on different subjects. But a little while ago, we started hosting some truly bizarro efforts from our friends at Stupidland, who take the topics we cover and then do something weird yet compelling with them. We encourage you to check those out as well. Perhaps, after sampling this audio cornucopia, you'll want to contact us with your ideas, comments, or critiques. If so, you can find us at theparanoidstrain at gmail.com, or just search The Paranoid Strain on your various social media accounts. For bonus points in our non-existent listener ranking system, why not send in an audio clip of you asking a question or making a comment in your own sultry voice? Our previous couple of episodes have been, at least for this show, pretty easygoing. Last time, we celebrated the tremendous decline in Alex Jones's fortunes and explored the silliness at the heart of Denver airport conspiracies. Before that, we beat the shit out of flat earthers. Yes, we batted them around like a kitten with a half-dead cricket, but it was hardly a fair fight. And we can't truly pat ourselves on the back, recalling the sage words of Glenn Close in Dangerous Liaisons. One does not applaud the tenor for clearing his throat. So this time, we hunt bigger game. And here, just as with our False Flags episode, we find ourselves dealing with a phenomenon that's both real and imagined, and therefore requires a bit more discernment than proving the Earth is round-ish. This episode's topic finally brings us to that wellspring of conspiracy thinking, assassinations. And before we even get started, I have to clear something up. This episode will not cover the assassination you're all thinking of. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. Yeah, that's the one. Of course, we know that absolutely no conspiracy show worth its salt can avoid discussing the murder of President John F. Kennedy in Dallas by one or more Spoiler. One. Shooter, whose name may or may not Spoiler. Definitely does. Rhyme with Flea Swarthy Cotswold. But that subject is so huge and so fundamental to the modern conspiracy theory mindset that we have to dedicate a full episode to it. So we will next time. This show, though, is going to delve into the fascinating history of assassination conspiracies, both those that definitely happened, like the aforementioned Lincoln shooting, and those that didn't. Specifically the murders of MLK and RFK, which were caused by one, and only one, self-serving dickbag apiece. We're also going to learn more about the offshoot sect of Islam, whose terrifying, lightning-fast surprise attacks on all who dared oppose them gave us both the modern concept of assassinations and even the word assassin. And finally, in a break with tradition, instead of spotlighting one uniquely crazy individual in our final segment, we'll talk a bit about how assassination conspiracy movies were both inspired by, and in turn inspired, modern assassins and the broader conspiracy culture surrounding them. There's no real starting point when it comes to talking about assassinations, which have probably gone on since the invention of organized politics. After all, the only difference between assassination and murder is the prominence of the murdered individual. So, while the English language term comes to us from 12th century Syria, more on that shortly, the act itself is thousands of years older. 
What we need is a near-randomly chosen event old enough to seem definitive, which can serve as our starting point. Dana, please spin the Wheel of Arbitrary Episode Starting Points. Okay, although I had no idea that was even a thing. Don't throw out your back. No, 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 not against the wall, middle of the room. Okay, make sure it's level. Nice job. Okay, good. Now, I'll give it a quick spin and... Ah, Judith and Holocene. Excellent point from which to kick off our survey. Now, this here story originates in Jewish history and myth. We here at The Strain are acutely aware that the only time our Jewish friends show up in our series is when some blithering jackass wants to accuse them of some imaginary nefarious deed or other. Which is why we're happy to be able to kick this episode off with a brief digression into Hebrew scriptures. Now, if this were going to be an episode about murder... We would obviously initiate with a retelling of the original murder trial, Cain v. Abel, his honor, Jehovah T. Almighty presiding. According to the book, there were only four people on Earth at the time, so we're not sure you needed a clue champion, much less an omnipotent deity, to know that it was Cain in the conservatory with the really big rock. But technically, that wasn't an assassination, as Abel wasn't a famous or powerful figure. I mean, again, given that he was one quarter of the population, it might have counted as a genocide? or a massive unlicensed culling of an endangered species. And he knew God personally, but they weren't exactly friends. Anyway, it was a big deal, but not an assassination for our purposes. For the good stuff, we turn to the book of Judith. While scholars attribute the story to a Jewish author, the only religious traditions that include this particular tale are the Catholic and Greek Orthodox versions of the Bible. But it's still pretty rad, even if modern Jews and Protestants give it a pass. In the tale, a beautiful widow named Judith is desired by a dickbag king named Holofernes, who spends most of his time trying to prioritize between his twin goals of getting all up in Judy's business and trying to conquer and destroy her hometown. Judith, a resourceful lass, uses her feminine wiles to finagle her way into his tent while he's on a bender, parries his cloddish attempts at making a pass until he passes out, and then she cuts his motherfucking head off. Sorry, couldn't resist. So this story was definitely fictional, but that didn't stop it from inspiring some truly amazing Renaissance paintings, including a 16th century rendition that looks nothing so much as Hermione Granger sitting in dainty repose with a recently severed head and an absolutely enormous sword. The link is in the show notes, Potter fans. Besides some rad art, it also inspired some of the baddest-ass guerrilla fighters of all time, the Jewish Sakari, who waged a brave but hopeless war against the Romans until the last few of them committed mass suicide at Masada rather than submit to the empire. And because their tactics included concealing their daggers beneath their cloaks, striking by surprise, murdering Romans and Jewish sympathizers, and melting back into the crowd, we're happy to call them one of the first assassination conspiracies in history. Speaking of Rome, that brings us to the first assassination conspiracy that every U.S. student learns about. In this case, usually via ninth grade English class. Wilt thou lift up Olympus? Great Caesar! Doth not Brutus bootless kneel? Sweet hands for me! Then fall, Caesar. 
Julius Caesar was one of the most important figures in history. A peerless military commander, he greatly expanded the territory of the Roman Republic before breaking historical precedent and a number of Roman laws by bringing his army back to Italy to defeat his rivals and establish himself as the unquestioned leader of Rome for life, an emperor in everything but name. Technically, the title bestowed on him by an obeisant senate was dictator in perpetuity. So, six of one. Naturally, Caesar's accretion of honors, titles, and most of all power over what was supposed to be a republic concerned other powerful citizens, and so eventually a group of senators, including some of Caesar's closest confidants, conspired to stab him to death on March 15th, 44 BC. This action was of world historical significance, if only because it set in motion the civil strife that would eventually result in Caesar's adopted son, Octavian, taking on the powers of his exalted father, as well as the official title of Emperor of the New Roman Empire. I believe we have some audio of that event. Anywho, there's no question that Caesar's murder was a conspiracy. Because, duh, a group of dudes all stabbed him at the same time, based on a predetermined plan. But as noted before, the word assassin, as it's currently used, was not a concept at the time. It does turn out that there was a long-standing Greco-Roman tradition of what was known as tyrannicide, as Lindsay Porter notes in her excellent book, Assassination, A History of Political Murder. The ancient Greeks, to whom we owe the word tyrant, were agreed that tyrannicide was not a crime. Great is the honor bestowed not on him who kills a thief, but on him who kills a tyrant, Plato declared. Bernard Lewis provides additional context in his book on the Ismaili assassins, which we're preparing to talk about extensively. In ancient Athens, two friends, Harmodius and Aristocheton, conspired to kill the tyrant Hippias. They succeeded only in killing his brother and co-ruler and were both put to death. After the fall of Hippias, they became public heroes in Athens, celebrated in statuary and song. Their descendants enjoyed privileges and exemptions. This idealization of tyrannicide became part of the political ethos of Greece and Rome and found expression in such famous murders as those of Philip II of Macedon, Tiberius Gracchus, and Julius Caesar. While the motivation for Caesar's assassination seems pretty obvious, in this context it's far less clear what the conspirators expected to accomplish. Again, Porter. Politically, the outcome of Caesar's assassination was a shambles. His assassins had no plan to restore Rome beyond removing Caesar himself. On that point, English tabloid journalist Brian McConnell has another theory in his entertaining, if somewhat lurid book, The History of Assassination. While most would consider the plot to kill Caesar a carefully planned out and timed event, McConnell suggests it might have been altogether more spontaneous and thus not such a clear-cut conspiracy at all. If they were so sure of success, need it have been carried out with such a sensational effect, so theatrical, that long before Shakespeare put his masterly pen to the historic fact, it was already a great drama? Is it not more likely that Caesar the autocrat had anchored his powerless friends by his behavior, that they decided on the spot to end his life? Given our lack of credentialed expertise on this topic and the weight of the countervailing opinions, we are inclined to agree with those who see the murder as the result of conspiracy. And concepts of tyrannicide and their subtle distinctions from modern political assassinations aside, we can probably take Caesar's murder as the template from which other assassination conspiracies can be judged. Now we turn our attentions from ancient Rome to 11th century Persia, the region we now know as Iran, to learn the origins of the term assassin and the falsehoods that many of us in the West may have learned regarding the word's history. 
In order to tell this story, we have to offer an almost insultingly brief overview of one of the world's great religions. Now, in keeping with our standard operating procedures here at The Strain, we're not going to get involved in analyzing or evaluating the beliefs of Muslims, especially since if we did, we would have very little idea what we were talking about. Also, given that our knowledge of the history and internecine conflicts of Islam are limited to a couple of college Middle Eastern history courses in the mid-90s, we're relying heavily on the work of highly respected Islamic scholar Bernard Lewis, and especially his slim 1969 volume, The Assassins, A Radical Sect in Islam. As near as we can tell, in spite of its age, no authoritative history has superseded this book since its publication. In fact, Lewis re-released it with a new preface in 2003, a nod to the nearly inescapable comparisons that were made in the wake of 9-11 between suicidal terrorists and the Ismailis who would trade their lives for those of their enemies. So, with apologies to our Islamic listeners and to the late Professor Lewis, here's the Paranoid Strain capsule biography of the Ismaili sect and the assassins who derived from it. As nearly anyone even passingly familiar with world history must surely know, the Prophet Muhammad was the founder of the religion of Islam. After initial setbacks, his new religion, which claimed to be the final revelation of God, the religion he founded began gaining adherence in his native Arabia. After some initial setbacks, his victorious followers conquered and converted his native city of Mecca before Muhammad's death in 632. Which is when all of the trouble started. As chronicled in Lewis's book, one of Muhammad's most trusted followers, Abu Bakr, was named Deputy of the Prophet, in Arabic the Khalifa, which led to the creation of the Islamic Caliphate, a governmental and religious organization with implications that reach forward in time to the present day. You may note that ISIS, among other terrorist groups, seeks to reinstate the Caliphate across any and all lands that have ever been held by Muslims since the 7th century. But all was not well in the wake of Abu Bakr's accession. Another group believed that Ali, the cousin and son-in-law of the Prophet, was his rightful spiritual and political heir. Lewis notes, This group came to be known as the Shiatu Ali, the party of Ali, and then simply as the Shia. In the course of time, it gave rise to the most important religious conflict in Islam. And so we find the religion divided between those who followed the line of Abu Bakr, who are known as the Sunni, and those who followed Ali, the Shia. In the modern world, the schism also represents the fundamental political division in the Middle East, with Saudi Arabia representing the locus of Sunni power and religious thought, and Iran representing the minority Shia view. Sunnis are 85-90% to 90 of Muslims worldwide. Nearly all Shia live in just four countries, Iran, Pakistan, India, and Iraq. In the early days, the Shia further divided themselves into camps Lewis refers to as the moderates and the extremists. There came a decisive split in 765 when the sixth post-Ali Imam died. His title then passed to his second son, as his first son, Ismail, had been disinherited. The term Imam, by the way, in Shia Islam, is not simply the person who leads prayers in a mosque, but is also the name for the one who leads the faithful in the footsteps of Muhammad. Those who followed the second son's title eventually became known as Twelver Shia because they believed the twelfth imam, that is, the imam six dudes down the line from the split we're dealing with here, is still alive but in hiding until the last days. This hidden prophet figure is also known as the Mahdi, which Lewis translates as the rightly guided one. Got that straight? No? Well, tough. We're sure it's difficult for people in the Islamic world to understand the history of Catholic, Protestant, religious, and doctrinal splits, too. Religious history gets super weird. True, in fact, dat. Anyway, the non-Twelvers, those who didn't follow the second son of the sixth imam, but instead followed Ismail and his descendants, became known as the Ismailis, and it's from these folks that our assassins eventually spring. So, 
the Ismaili Shia were the minority of a minority within the Islamic world. And as you might expect, they had a tough road to hoe. But at least in the early days of Islamic conquest, they also had some advantages. See, the Ismailis were known as one of the most spiritual and philosophical versions of Islam. Meanwhile, the majority Sunnis expanded the caliphate and drew in new believers, either through force of argument or by the sword, as it were. And I don't know if you've ever known somebody who suddenly converts to a new religion, but they rarely do so in a half-assed manner. And these folks had some religious baggage, to quote Lewis. New believers carried with them from their Christian, Jewish, and Iranian backgrounds religious concepts and attitudes unknown to the early Arab Muslims. And with the zeal of new converts, they wanted a shiny, polished, apolitical, deeply spiritual version of their newly adopted faith. Inevitably, some of them were disappointed by the worldly concerns of the Sunni caliphate and were instead attracted to the Shia, who claimed to be the purer form of Islam that sought the restoration of the Prophet's bloodline. And within the Shia sect, the most mystical, philosophical, and generally touchy-feely of all Islamic belief systems stood the Ismailis. All of these factors led to the rise of Ismailism as an important sect of Islam beginning in the 10th century when the Ismailis took over Cairo, ruling it until 1171. And now, finally, we come to the origins of the assassins, which means we're ready to talk about Hassan i Sabah. Sabah was a Persian Twelver Shia born sometime in the middle of the 11th century who converted to Ismailism while living in the city of Rai, we're guessing on the pronunciation there, today known as Tehran. Around 1067, he got into Dutch with the authorities due to his evangelical approach to his new beliefs, and therefore fled to Egypt, then the stronghold of Ismailism. From there, he began conducting operations in his native region, mostly efforts to convert northern Persian tribesmen who had thus far been relatively resistant to the call of Islam. But Sabah wasn't just a great promoter of Ismailism. He also dabbled in real estate speculation. As he built his forces, he also scouted out some primo views, focusing on acquiring castles way up high in the mountains. He settled on one particularly nice stronghold atop the mountain Alamut, which Lewis translates as the Eagle's Teaching. He connived his way inside, strong-armed the ruler into abandoning the place, and on September 4th, 1090, he entered his fortress never to leave it again. Seriously. Like, never. He never came down from the mountains or left the gates of the castle, according to sources. In fact, he only went outside twice in 35 years, both times to stand on the roof. Now, you remember the opening of this episode where you heard a Sabah stand-in deliver a variation on the traditional story of how the assassins were drugged and deluded into murdering the sect's enemies? We're going to deal with that, but spoiler, it's a myth. And one of the reasons we know that is by all accounts, including those of later Sunni chroniclers, who absolutely fucking hated Sabah and everything he stood for, the guy was a teetotaler who would never have had either alcohol or hashish anywhere on the premises. Instead, he apparently lived an ascetic, abstemious, and pious life. Of course, this use of pious is defined to mean clean living, regular prayer, intellectually fulfilling study, and periodically sending followers out to murder your religious and political opponents. The first of these was the vizier of the Seljuk kingdom, Nizam al-Mulk Telsi. In 1092, safe and secure in his mountain fortress, but also acutely aware that he didn't have the military might to impose his views on the Sunni and Twelver Shia rulers who surrounded him, Sabah got creative. Ismaili scribes relate the story as follows. Our master said, Who of you will rid this state of the evil of Nizam al-Mulk Tusi? A man called Butahir Arani laid the hand of acceptance on his breast. He came in the guise of a Sufi to the litter of Nizam al-Mulk, who was being borne from the audience place to the tent of his women, and struck him with a knife, and by that blow he suffered martyrdom. Our master said, The killing of this devil is the beginning of bliss. 
As Lewis puts it, this was the first of a long series of such attacks, which, in a calculated war of terror, brought sudden death to sovereigns, princes, generals, governors, and even divines who had condemned Ismaili doctrines and authorized the suppression of those who professed them. During the reign of Hassan is Sabah, almost 50 assassinations are recorded in the sect's Roll of Honor. The idea was to strike fear in the hearts of any who might oppose his group, and in that they were highly effective. No commander or officer, says a later Arabic chronicler, dared to leave his house unprotected. They wore armor under clothes. Eventually, the assassins threatened the sultan himself. Sabah bribed one of the big man's eunuchs. Incidentally, isn't it weird that one time any sufficiently powerful person in this region was just expected to have one or more eunuchs in his posse? Anyway, he had Dickless stab a dagger into the ground next to the sultan's bed in the dead of night. We don't have any audio of the subsequent morning, but we're pretty sure it sounded a lot like this scene from The Godfather. Anyway, the sultan, though terrified, kept the incident on the QT so no one would know that Sabah had gotten so close to him. Then he received what we might call an offer he couldn't refuse. Hassan is Sabah sent a messenger with the following message. Did I not wish the sultan well? That dagger which was struck into the hard ground would have been planted in his soft breast. Lewis notes the sultan took fright and from then on inclined toward peace with the Ismailis, to which we would simply add, duh. Hassan Isabach passed away peacefully, unlike so many of those who had crossed his path, in 1124. While we don't need to dwell on Hassan's Persian heirs to the Alamut throne, it's worth briefly noting that one of them, also named Hassan but whom we'll call Hassan Jr., declared that all of Islamic law was basically null and void because of some spiritual revelation he'd had. The most shocking moment of this was when he enjoined his followers to face away from Mecca and enjoy a feast during the middle of the holy fasting month of Ramadan. Imagine an Orthodox rabbi peeing on the Torah while serving his congregation bacon cheeseburgers and popcorn shrimp on Yom Kippur, and you're probably in the ballpark. Shortly thereafter, he declared that, in point of fact, he was the imam, and not simply a messenger of the imam, as his predecessors, including Hassan Sr., had maintained. Surprise! Needless to say, this theological innovation, did nothing to endear his flock to their neighbors, and within a couple of years this situation led to Junior getting the shit stabbed out of him by his brother-in-law. He's my brother-in-law! Though the assassins were very successful in terms of holding on to their claims in their mountain castles against all sorts of attempted invasions, their original raison d'etre for claiming those castles, which was to use them to assault and eventually overthrow all other Shia and Sunni kingdoms, was a huge failure. They increasingly were seen throughout Persia as marginal religious heretics. By 1270, the current leader of the Ismailis had capitulated to the Mongol invaders, helped them to conquer the rest of the sect's castles, found himself suddenly useless to his captor benefactors, and subsequently was kicked and stabbed to death on the side of the road. The faithful kept on believing through the dead imam's son, and they even briefly retook Alamut in 1275. But Lewis notes they were forever after simply a minor sect in the hinterlands of Persia, Afghanistan, and a few other Central Asian nations, where they can still be found today. Wow, that was a lot. But we're finished with the assassins now, right? Oh shit no, because the Persian assassins weren't even the ones that inspired the term. Those were the Syrian assassins. Well, couldn't you have started with them then? Well, yeah, but then we would have missed out on all this rad history we just covered. But... Was the history we covered not rad? Well... Sure, yeah, it was interesting. It was... what? It was rad. W what, are you 14? Your words cut me to the quick, Dana Unicorn.
So before the Ismailis became a footnote in Islamic history, they sent out a missionary expedition to Syria. And as you might expect, starting in 1103, the Syrian Ismailis put some points on the board for the away team with the sensational murder of Jana al-Dawla, the ruler of Homs, in the cathedral mosque of the city during Friday prayer. Cold-blooded. So, as you see, they got up to their old tricks. But the most important factor for our purposes is that the move into Syria would bring them into contact with the crusaders of Western Europe, who were in the midst of a series of hilariously ill-thought-out and increasingly doomed expeditions to free the Holy Land from the Muslims, who thought the same land was indeed holy, only for slightly different reasons. Luckily, they eventually figured all of this out, and the Middle East has been peaceful ever since. <coughs> well, but Lewis notes the assassins never really turned their sights on Christians, preferring to concentrate on those whom they saw as Islamic apostates, who in turn saw them as the same thing. You know the drill. But there's no doubt it was the Syrian contingent whose behavior caused the Europeans and their shitty teenage boy poets to adopt the assassins as figures of legend and eventually as a noun describing politically motivated murder of all kinds. A brief aside on that boy poets thing. Lewis points out that the first appearances of assassins in European text are references to their fanatical devotion as a metaphor for romantic love in the quatrains of European Lotharios. For example... You have me more fully in your power than the old man has his assassins, who will go to kill his mortal enemies. It turns out that at first the word meant loyalty, and only came to mean murderers later. While the Syrian Ismailis never carved out long-term territorial gains the way their Persian brethren did, they are notable in another respect. They're the only ones who were ever actually called assassins. Again, Lewis. The Arabic and Persian sources make it quite clear that assassin was a local name applied only to the Ismailis of Syria and never to those of Persia or any other country. Before we leave this topic, we of course need to touch on the myth and the reality behind both the name of the assassins and the supposed drug-fueled delusions they immerse their followers in to convince them to commit murder. Again, we quote Lewis. Orthodox polemicists depict the Ismailis as a band of nihilists who misled their dupes through successive stages of degradation, in the last of which they revealed the full horror of their unbelief. Ismaili writers see the sect as custodians of sacred mysteries, to which the believer could attain only after a long course of preparation and instruction, marked by progressive initiations. And about those dupes misled through successive degradations, that refers to a story that, thanks to Marco Polo, who originally got it from Sunni Arab sources, explains how Hassan convinced his men to kill for him. It's been circulating throughout European countries for about a millennium, and in spite of the fact that it's been well-refuted, is still repeated, as if gospel, on that great modern mythmaker, YouTube. Within his mountain fortress of Alamut, Lord Sabah built the legendary Garden of Earthly Delights. Here he had imported exotic plants, birds few had ever seen before, and unusual animals from all over the world. And streams of milk, wine, and honey allegedly flowed throughout this earthly paradise, while fountains gushed with wine or pure spring water. Lord Sabah gave his initiates spiked food and drink and after the powerful potion of opium and hashish knocked them out, they would be carried into the sacred garden while in a deep sleep. And when the initiate awoke from his slumber, a host of young beautiful virgins would greet him, singing and dancing 
and playing lovely flutes with other instruments for him. Welcome to paradise, they sang as the awakening initiate gazed about in wonder. By the magic of the holy lord Hassan, you have entered paradise while still alive. The initiate would be covertly fed more hashish and opium during the experience to ensure the maximum effect on his psyche. The young candidate would sleep again, they would then be removed from the Garden of Delights and returned to the banquet hall of Lord Hassan. There they awoke, and after pledging their devotion, became one of the illuminated. This technique proved very effective. Hassan could demand absolute loyalty from his followers with no questions asked. Lewis explains that the story is almost certainly untrue for a number of reasons. First, Everyone around the assassins at the time was well aware of the effects of hashish. It wasn't some secret, sacred drug known only to the Ismailis. More importantly, the Ismailis never mention using the drug in their rituals, and neither do later Arab chroniclers. And again, those Sunni writers only mention the Ismailis in order to talk shit about how horrible and wrong they were. Surely they would have been all too happy to dig up drug-fueled, hypnotizing, mind-controlled dirt on these guys if there was any to find. Instead, per Lewis. In all probability, it was the name that gave rise to the story, rather than the reverse. Of various explanations that have been offered, the likeliest is that it was an expression of contempt for the wild beliefs and extravagant behavior of the sectaries, a derisive comment on their conduct, rather than a description of their practices. In other words, the assassins are indeed called assassins as a European derivation of hashashin, in turn derived from hashish, but that's not because they took drugs. It's because those who opposed them thought they were so fanatically devoted to their leader that they acted like hash-crazed loonies. Still, it's a great story, right? A fake paradise room where you convince stone teens to do dumb shit? Surely somebody's building that in VR right now? So, what have we learned? In spite of the layers of falsehoods that accumulated around the sect, it's unquestionable that the assassins, both Syrian and Persian varieties, formed what amounted to an insular, secret society that imposed its will on the world around them by plotting carefully targeted political and religious murders. Thus, like Caesar's assailants, they are rightly known as an assassination conspiracy, perhaps the biggest and most important ever created. Here we leave the origins of the name behind and return to assassinations and accompanying conspiracies, both real and imagined, that have shaped our contemporary view of these dramatic political acts. Coming to save the day It's the paranoid strain So many things to explain I'm the paranoid strain Oh, we're watching, they're watching We're watching you Skipping forward about seven centuries, we come to perhaps the most significant assassination in American history, and certainly the single rudest interruption of a play on record, John Wilkes Booth's single shot into the brain of the greatest American president in 1865. This event has riveted the attention of historically-minded Americans for more than 150 years, as can be seen in this episode of the 1950s TV show I've Got a Secret, where an elderly man invites a panel of mid-century celebrities to guess the remarkable event that he witnessed. You tell our panel, please, what your name is and where you're from. 
My name's Samuel J. Seymour. I'm from Maryland. This is Mr. Seymour from Maryland. How old are you, by the way, sir? Ninety-six. Ninety-six years old. Now, sir, if you'll whisper your secret to me, I'm sure the folks at home would like to know what it is. Well, now, to help classify his secret, I will tell you it concerns something that he witnessed. <clears throat> and Bill Cullen, we'll start with you. This thing that Mr. Seymour saw, does it uh, have uh, historical significance? Uh, does this have historical significance, Mr. Seymour? I would say yes, wouldn't you, sir? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're 96, I would make Mr. Seymour born in uh, 1860. 1860. Okay. This, uh, this thing, did it have anything to do with the uh, Civil War, Mr. Seymour? Well, uh, let's say indirectly it was concerned with the Civil War. Mr. Seymour, would this person have ever been President of the United States? Was he ever President, this man? Well, I think he was once. Yes. Did Mr. Seymour witness the shooting of President Lincoln? We found out about Mr. Seymour through a recent article in the American Weekly and it said, I saw Lincoln shot. And this article is by Samuel J. Seymour. And it goes on to say that Mr. Seymour was five years old at the time. He had been taken to Ford's Theater by some good friends. And the curious thing was that when he saw Booth jump from the box to the stage, at which time he broke his leg, his only concern was not for the president, because he didn't realize that the president had been shot, but the poor man who fell out of the balcony. And that's all of his memory is of going to the theater and seeing a man fall out of the balcony. Remember our earlier discussion of tyrannicide? Well, Booth, a popular actor whose dislikes included, in order of increasing opprobrium, African Americans, the victorious Union forces, and President Lincoln himself, according to Lindsay Porter, this shitheel Olivier, likened himself to Brutus in his aim to free America from what he perceived as a tyranny of Lincoln's administration. He seemed genuinely perplexed that the American people did not share his view of the president as a tyrant and himself as a liberator. Yes, the greatest, most eloquent, thoughtful, brilliant, effective, honorable politician we've ever had in office. People didn't like it when you shot him like a dog. Who'd a thunk? However evil and impactful Booth's solo actions were, though, there is absolutely no question that there was, in fact, a conspiracy to murder President Lincoln. If you listen to our last episode, you'll recognize that as the newly introduced paranoid strain justified conspiracy alarm. As with last episode's usage, this is a minor concession. Mainstream historians agree that a small group of like-minded individuals working with Booth planned not only to murder Lincoln, but simultaneously to kill the vice president and secretary of state. While Booth was obviously and unfortunately successful, one co-conspirator succeeded only in wounding Secretary of State Seward, while the guy assigned to off VP Andrew Johnson instead chose to sleep off a mean drunk. The story of the assassination plot, Booth's escape and eventual killing by a U.S. cavalry detachment, and the trial and subsequent hangings and imprisonment of his co-plotters makes for riveting reading. But our brief discussion here is concerned not so much with what we know did happen, but rather with what folks have argued, both more and less convincingly, might have happened. The admirably thorough website on the assassination, administered by one Roger J. Norton, includes a page on various assassination conspiracy theories. You'll find the link in the show notes. Ranging from the plausible to the pie-eyed. For example, one version suggests Andrew Johnson, the widely reviled aforementioned vice president who succeeded the murdered Lincoln and proceeded to roundly fuck up the administration of the post-war Reconstruction period, was a co-conspirator. This view appears to rest on the fact that Booth had stopped by his house earlier the day of the assassination and left a note. This isn't super plausible, as you'll recall, the conspiracy actually included the murder of Johnson on its agenda, though that was assigned to one George Azerot, hereafter known as Drinky McNoshoot, who wisely went on a bender instead. 
Most scholars believe either that Booth was scoping out the home of a target or doing some skullduggery to make it seem as if Johnson was actually involved. Other theories posited are more plausible, the idea that various higher-ups in the Confederate government were at least supporting Booth's efforts if not directing them seems potentially reasonable. However, given that the number one suspect in this theory, Confederate Secretary of State Judah P. Benjamin, burned all of his official documents, including, of course, any that might have linked him to Booth at the end of the war, this suggestion thus far remains simply an intriguing speculation. Also, given the way that Jewish people, like the aforementioned Mr. Benjamin, tend to get conspiracy theorists all hot and bothered whenever they can be attached to any nefarious goings-on, we feel it's a good idea to hold this one at arm's length until better sources arise. The most arcane, and therefore appealing to this podcast, theory is put forward by one Charles Hyam in his 2004 book, Murdering Mr. Lincoln. Hyam purports to use hitherto undiscovered documents to connect frequent targets of Lincoln conspiracists' attention, like Confederate agent George Nicholas Sanders, with prominent Northern businessmen in a wide-spanning assassination conspiracy. The crux is that Lincoln, toward the end of the Civil War, canceled a policy that had provided exemptions allowing certain Northern industries to trade with the Confederates even during the course of the war. By eliminating this policy, Hyam asserts, Lincoln signed his own death warrant. Now, one shouldn't dismiss a person's arguments based on their other work, but it might be worth noting that Hyam's notoriety rested on a series of more or less scandalous, unsanctioned biographies he had written about celebrities including Lucille Ball, Orson Welles, and Errol Flynn. In that last one, he accused the long-deceased Robin Hood actor, apparently baselessly, of being an active Nazi sympathizer, an accusation he was later forced to withdraw. Also, his obituary in The Telegraph notes the following. Hyam was not pleasant company. He had an irritating habit of insulting waiters in restaurants, and often sat at the table for 45 minutes before deigning to consult the menu. If your mama never told you, treating waiters badly is one of the surest signs that an individual is bad news. Anyway, Lincoln scholars have roundly ignored Hyam's book, with contemporary reviews noting, for example, The links between the proposed conspirators are tenuous, and Hyam tries to obscure his lack of proof with bluster. Even the kindest reviewers note that his suggestions are tantalizing but never sufficiently substantiated. So, simply sticking with the known parameters of the event, it's clear that with Lincoln's assassination we once again have a genuine murder conspiracy with clearly delineated players. And while there may be some lingering questions, the key elements of the plot are known and understood by history. It's also worth noting, before we leave this topic, that the most conspiracy-minded chroniclers of this event bring up theories that minimize the strategizing agency and therefore responsibility for the crime that can be assigned to the actual perpetrator, John Wilkes Booth. It seems these theorists generally doubt that Booth and his known cronies could have carried the thing off on their own, and so they posit a probably unwarranted, larger conspiracy to satisfy their own doubts, never bothering to provide sufficient evidence. This represents a pattern that we'll see far more strongly in the most controversial slayings of the 60s. A couple more quick stops on the way there, though. While the conspiracy that murdered Lincoln was of a reactionary sort, the subsequent 50 years saw Europe and America racked by a series of assassinations and attempts by political radicals, referred to as anarchists, though we shall see that label didn't apply to all of them. Anarchism is opposition to the establishment of a strong central state as a form of government, favoring instead smaller, voluntary forms of association as legitimate authorities. As this view gained popularity over the second half of the 19th century, many of those strong central state governments reacted rather poorly to that development, striving to stamp out nascent anarchist organizations across Europe and the U.S. While some anarchists continued to pursue their aims by peaceful means, others turned to violence, especially the sudden, shocking political violence of assassination. Lindsay Porter notes that, Between 1881 and 1914, five successful assassination plots were carried out on Europeans' head of states. 
Tsar Alexander II killed 1881. President Sadi Cano of France, 1894. Prime Minister Canoas del Castillo of Spain, 1897. Empress Elizabeth of Austria, 1898. And King Umberto of Italy, 1900. While in 1901, President William McKinley was assassinated in the United States. Plus, some dumb motherfucker tried to shoot the apparently unkillable Teddy Roosevelt. I think we have audio of TR's response. I'm your huckleberry. Which brings us to the 1914 killing of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, which, as even the most disinterested high school history student knows, was the event that most directly precipitated the start of World War I. Now, technically the conspiracy that led to Ferdinand's and his wife's bloody deaths was not by anarchists, but rather by Serbian nationalists who pursued anarchist tactics, including surprise attacks with bombs in public places to achieve their ends. The other major innovation introduced by this plot, which has resonance with the rest of our subject matter in this episode, was a change in what made an individual a potential target for an assassin's bullet. The idea was not to kill the Archduke because of who he was, or the things he had done, as has been the case with all of our previous incidents. Instead, Franz Ferdinand was Princip's chosen target, not for what he did, but for what he represented. By bringing about his death, Princip and the other participants in the conspiracy would force the world to take notice of their plight. So they killed Ferdinand to draw attention to their cause, having no real idea of the millions of deaths that would eventually result as the consequences of their act unspooled. Unintended consequences are certainly something we'll see in later assassinations. But that's not all, right? What do you mean? The conspiracists have some dipshit ideas about what really happened, surely? Of course they do. As Frank White is only too happy to explain in his breathless tome, The Illuminati's Greatest Hits, while we listen to his ranting, who's up for a quick round of Paranoid Strain Bingo? Cards ready? Dana, hit it. Why get rid of Franz Ferdinand? Obviously, this was a plan all along by the international Illuminati bankers headed by the Rothschilds. Okay, please mark off Illuminati, Rothschilds, and by association Jews on your cards. I see some very excited faces out there. To bring about world war, because this is how they make money by financing all sides in the conflict and charging a huge amount of interest, in effect, indebting the nations to them. In fact, they really don't care who wins the war as long as they make money. It was also part of the Rothschild strategy to bring the U.S. into World War I to ensure that the United States government borrowed from the newly formed Federal Reserve Central Bank, which they controlled. Okay, this is getting exciting. Please mark your squares for international bankers. Now, no, 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 Gertrude, you know you can't count that one if you already marked out Jews? What do you mean, why? Because to conspiracists, those words mean the same thing, that's why. Okay, let's also mark U.S. in debt slavery and Federal Reserve. Bingo! Oh, it looks like Mildred is our big winner. Thanks to everyone for playing. And now we're finally ready to jump forward 50 years. To grapple with the assassinations of the 1960s, the figures whose lives they cut short, and the endless conspiracy theories they've inspired. And the only thing standing in our way is this quick musical interlude. hope you've enjoyed our tour through a wide array of historically verified, well-attested, certifiable assassination conspiracies. Because now we're about to enter a different phenomenon, historically verified, well-attested assassinations that can conclusively be linked to a single person, 
yet for which the conspiracy-minded, and in some cases much of the public at large, blame a vastly different group of imagined malicious actors. As we mentioned at the top of the show, essentially all modern assassination conspiracies are centered around Dallas 1963. But since we've chosen to give Jack and Lee their own entire episode next time, we're going to have to start our review of the traumatic, shocking murders that transpired five years later by simply acknowledging this. Had JFK not been killed by a lone assassin, then it's at least plausible that the two men who took up arms against Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy would never have gotten the idea or the nerve to commit the cowardly acts they're responsible for. And had President Kennedy's murder not quickly metastasized into a never-ending mirrored funhouse labyrinth of mutually exclusive conspiracy theories, it's conceivable that these shootings would never have been seen as conspiracies at all, however inevitable that development seems from our vantage point in the conspiracy-riven, post-factual internet age. Because the thing is, folks, the cases against James Earl Ray and Sirhan Sirhan are both pretty straightforward open-and-shut affairs. I know, you heard differently. But we think we can convince you. Because both of these events happened within months of each other, it probably makes sense to simply take them on in chronological order. And so we turn our attention to Memphis, Tennessee, in April of 1968. Dr. Martin Luther King's leadership in the civil rights movement had made him famous for more than a decade in the United States by the time he returned to Memphis that spring. His arrival at this point was occasioned by a second try at a series of marches and demonstrations supporting a strike by the horrifically mistreated garbage workers of that city. An earlier attempt in late March had turned violent, as local youth groups used King's event as cover to commit vandalism, and police responded the way police in the 1960s always responded. During his visit, King stayed at the Lorraine Motel. On the night of April 4th, as King and his colleagues were about to leave for dinner at the home of a local minister, he was shot and killed by a single bullet from a .30-06 rifle. That rather bloodless statement of facts hardly does justice to the magnitude of this crime, or its impact on America and the world. Fortunately, though, the Lorraine Motel has, in the decades since, been transformed into the magnificent Museum of Civil Rights. During my travels on behalf of this show in 2017, I was fortunate enough to visit this amazing place and to tour through its careful recreation of the struggle African Americans have undergone to secure their basic human rights over the past 400-plus years. There are sacred places. Places where we remember those who paid the heaviest price for our freedom. You are at a sacred place. Martin Luther King Jr. From the slave ships, to the struggle for emancipation, to the resistance against widespread lynching, to the series of Supreme Court cases, protest movements, racist backlash, and sweeping victories that attended the modern civil rights movement, the museum does an incredible job of bringing this vital story to life. Of course, central to the experience is the key role played by Dr. King and his colleagues in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference.
At the end of the tour, already overwhelmed visitors silently, solemnly walk through the very room where Dr. King stayed. See the place where a coward's bullet cut him down, and the wreath that permanently marks that spot. You see, the museum's designers have wisely restored the Lorraine Motel's facade to match the way it looked that day in 1968. Which means, of course, that when you visit, the first thing you see as you round the corner is the same parking lot and balcony you've seen in a thousand black-and-white photos of the scene of Dr. King's murder. I dare you not to cry. My visit to the museum was facilitated by the wonderful staff there, especially museum educator Ryan Jones, who was also kind enough to walk me through the history of the motel, its importance to the civil rights movement in Memphis, and how it came to house the Civil Rights Museum. Yeah, I'm a native Memphian here, um, graduate student at the University of Memphis uh, with an intent to complete my dissertation on the civil rights movement in Mississippi and the violence. My family's from the Delta area. So I was always taught these stories about civil rights. Uh, they, they moved to Memphis because the Delta was just that, that, that violent. Civil rights was a, was a very important internal mission for me. You know, for me uh, growing up, I just thought that there were so many lives that were given so that I could have this opportunity. So I really kind of uh, pride myself on telling their stories that they were unable to complete. Sure. So uh, the National Civil Rights Museum originally opened in September 1991. Prior to becoming a museum, this was a, a very booming hotel. Um, it originally opened in the year 1920, and it was known as the Windsor Hotel. And this was a white-only owned motel at the time. Uh, there were two African-American entrepreneurs, a couple uh, by the name of Walter and Lori Bailey. They purchased some area on Vance Avenue, which is about one block uh, north of where we are. And they renamed, they called their hotel the Lorraine Motel, and this only catered to African-Americans during that time. Uh, they had about eight rooms for about 75 cents a night, and this is around circa 1938, 1931, right at the start of the Second World War. And they realized that with Memphis being such a great, huge attraction for music and entertainment, uh, they were going to need some more space. And so in 1945, they came and they purchased what was at the time called the Melba Motel, and they renamed what was on Vance Avenue to how now why it's called the Lorraine Motel here. Um, and it still at that time only served to African-Americans. Around 1955, Mr. Bailey uh, was beginning to become very moved by this new freedom struggle, what we now know as the modern civil rights movement. Uh, particular cases that come to mind are, was the Supreme Court's decision in 1954, the Brown versus Board of Education, and the heinous lynching of Emmett Till, which occurred about 90 minutes south of where we are now. And he decided we should have an integrated motel. And to his dismay, you know, there are people in the community that were not receptive to this idea, but he went forth and did it anyway. So uh, when you're dealing with artists and entertainment, um, many of the bands of these high African-American celebrities would travel with, with white band members, um, Stax artists alone, uh, the Booker T and the MGs normally were normal guests here at the Lorraine. Uh, two very important songs in the Stax discography were written here in the doors of the Lorraine. Wilson Pickett's uh, In the Midnight Hour and Eddie Floyd's Knock on Wood were all written and composed here by Steve Cropper here in the Lorraine Motel. Yeah, Lorraine was, was a happening place. 
Uh, if you were anybody, you were here at the Lorraine. It was more so just a hotel. It was a gathering place for for all Memphians traveling in and outside of the community. And you just never know who you would come in and see. You could be checking into your room and the next day you look outside and you see Isaac Hayes sitting at the swimming pool with vanilla ice cream. So uh, the Lorraine Motel was a, it was a, it was an area specifically in Memphis that was incredibly booming um, and continuing to, uh, to promote you know, peace, equality, and, and justice for all people. Jackie Robinson, uh, when they were when the Negro Leagues was in commission, the visiting team playing against the Memphis Red Sox were all normal guests here. Uh, but of course, the most prominent and popular, of course, was Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, when he made his return here in the spring of 1968. Of course, the tragedy occurs on April the fourth, uh, and after that, Mr. Bailey notices a significant decline in business because of the tragedy that occurred here. So for 14 years later, uh, this property forecloses. And so three Memphians, a man by the name of Dearmy Bailey, Charles Scruggs, and A.W. Willis, these are all Memphis businessmen, African-American, and they decide to purchase this property. Later, Mr. Jones walked me through another part of the facility. This building, which was originally a boarding house, was the place where James Earl Ray checked in shortly before Dr. King was murdered. Backing it up all the way to the international slave trade, through the Civil War, through the era of Jim Crow, and then to really dissect the story of the civil rights movement uh, from 1954 to the, the, the exact moment of Dr. King's assassination. The museum has transformed this place into a thorough, detailed review of the assassination, investigation, arrest, and trial of Ray, as well as some of the competing theories about who and how the responsibility for King's death should be assigned. Much like my experience with my friend and the artist for this show, Willem UFO, regarding his doubts on the 9-11 attacks, please see episode 8 for that discussion. Mr. Jones served as an informed, intelligent voice for those who have doubts about the official version of the assassination and Ray's role in it, as you'll hear shortly. So this room, where we are, is this is the rooming house where they believed a man named John Willard, who later becomes James Olray, um, they believed that he checked into this room around 4 p.m. on the day of the assassination. This car right here is a 66 Mustang. James Olray was driving a 66 Mustang all, all basically across the entire country. Um, Ray is a 40-year-old escaped convict out of Missouri State Penitentiary called Jeff City. All of the crimes that he committed up until that point were very, very petty, small crimes. And so he leaves Jeff City in April 1967. He goes to Montreal, Canada, and he comes into a large sum of money. You know, he spent from March 67 to about June 68 when he's captured, he spends about 11 grand. In 68, that wasn't any chump change. When you're looking at the theory that Ray is guilty all by himself, the FBI's main focus on this and that his motive was, was the 68 election feature governor of Alabama at the time, George Wallace, who was running for the American Independent Party. And, and Wallace, in that way, spoke to the the Southern who was defying government, you know, states' rights. We want to practice states' rights. 
Dr. King is giving an interview on the Johnny Carson television show, and he responds with uh, Wallace running for president as an abomination of this country. So the FBI believes that Ray wanted Wallace to win so bad that he's got to take him out. Sanitation workers are striking here in Memphis. Ray checks into this, this building on the second floor under the alias of John Willard again. So this is room 5B. Conveniently, it has a window right here, which will outlook and you can see the Lorraine Motel. Now, Ray would not have been able to have uh, a good shot from this area, so he would have had to come out into this room, come into this community bathroom, and he would have to look across the street. And of course, you will see the Lorraine Hotel and its very open view. Martin Luther King Jr. is going to eat dinner that night at our local Memphis minister's home. He goes inside of room 306 where you see the balcony is placed and he gets ready. So he comes outside. It's 5 till 6 p.m. So he's speaking to people in the courtyard. So allegedly, James O'Reilly sees this from his bedroom, runs into this bathroom with his rifle and fires the fatal shot at 6.01 p.m. Ray supposedly comes out of this bathroom, goes and puts this rifle into this bag, and he has a lot of other of his personal belongings, like beer cans and transistor radios, and he runs down the stairs and he walks out on Main Street. He has a problem. He looks to his left and he sees a patrol car. James O. Ray supposedly drops this bundle with the rifle and all these other things to have his fingerprints on it, not even 300 feet from where the shot was being fired. And so he gets in the Mustang and he drives to Atlanta, Georgia, and he gets out of the city of Memphis undetected. The next day he abandons the Mustang. He buys a one-way bus ticket uh, from Atlanta to Toronto, Canada. And then from there, uh, about a week later, he obtains five different aliases, Canadian passports of men that look exactly like him uses the name Eric Galt, John Willard, Harvey Lohmeyer, Ramon Sneed, Paul Bridgman. When he was asked how did he receive all these aliases in 1978, when the congressional hearings reopened the assassination, gave no sort of explanation whatsoever. He travels from Toronto to London, where he's finally captured at Scotland Yard. Um, they realized that all of those five aliases were indeed James O'Reilly because there was a fingerprint on this rifle here that we see. Um, he's brought back to the city of Memphis, he's extradited, and he pleads not guilty to the assassination. And the day before the opening statements were to begin, he fired his attorney. He hired another attorney by the name of Percy Foreman, and Foreman is not interested in trying this case. He's clearly stating, listen, if you take a plea bargain, you may get a very light sentence. Waves his right to trial, he receives 99 years, Tennessee State Penitentiary. He recants immediately, tries to have a, a, a trial here in the state of Tennessee. This doesn't happen. And he remains this way until he dies in April 1998 of liver cancer. According to James O'Reilly, a, a character named Raul, he, who he's described as being Mexican-American, when he was in Montreal, he meets this character named Raul, who's, you know, if you do some gun scheming jobs for me through Cuba or, or, or through here or through Mexico, it'll give you some money and, you know, so that you can kind of lay low since you are an ex-con. So according to Ray, closer to the time of the assassination, Raul tells him to go to Birmingham 
to buy a Ford Mustang, tying in with the George Wallace connection, state of Alabama, Alabama plates, which are on the other side of this wall. Uh, but I want you to buy a high power rifle. So Ray goes into a, a Birmingham arms store and he buys a 243, a very big slug. The next day he returns and takes the 243 back because Raul said you need to buy a 30 out 6 Game Master Remington rifle, which is what we see here. So according to Ray, he brings this rifle into the city of Memphis on Wednesday, April the 3rd, and he gives it to Raul. He admitted to buying the rifle. He even had his fingerprint on it. But he said after April the 3rd, he never saw it again. Fall of 1993, uh, there was a story on ABC Primetime where a local man by the name of Lloyd Jowers, who owned a bar called Jim's Grill, right below where we're standing in 1968. According to Jowers, he was approached by a Memphis businessman who also allegedly had ties to organized crime, a man by the name of Frank Liberto. And Frank Liberto said that I will give you $100,000 if you arrange and participate in the plot to kill Martin Luther King Jr. The Dr. King that gave the I Have a Dream speech in August 1963 was completely different from the Dr. King that was murdered here at the Lorraine Motel. He wasn't really focusing on the civil rights movement. Civil rights is a race issue, but more now it's economic injustice. Uh, and the most important thing going on in this country at that time was the war in Vietnam, which he denounced right. completely. So he had a lot of forces and, and people who were against them, and Liberto would have been one of them. The King family always suspected that Ray was not the assassin. They always believed that this was a, a very well put together plot. And I think the smoking gun of this entire theory was when the rifle that we see there, this rifle was never fully tested for its ballistics report in 1968 and 1969. It wasn't until around 1995 or 96 when this rifle was tested. 34 different tests were performed. Not one matched the bullet removed from Dr. King's body in his autopsy. So the King family files a wrongful death suit against Lloyd Jowers, and they produce 80 witnesses here in the city of Memphis, suggesting that Dr. King was not killed by James O'Reilly. And if he was killed by James O'Reilly, he certainly was giving a great amount of help in doing so. Um, and so a jury of six blacks and six whites found that Ray was likely not the assassin, and that Dr. King was killed as a result of a conspiracy with members of the United States government and uh, the Memphis Police Department and organized crime. So this, this, this area right here, this was Jim's Grill. This is where Lloyd Jowers operated a bar. Lloyd Jowers, that room right there went into the back of his kitchen. According to Jowers, there was a man, another man, a Memphis policeman called Earl Clark, fires the shot right here. Mr. Clark tosses the rifle that has just done the deed, runs and jumps off of this retaining wall, and he runs this way and he gets into a white Chevy Cruiser and drives off. What we're standing in was filled with tall brush, probably going up to where this camera is right there. We're so sort of on the second floor. Yeah. Right. So. When the shot rings out, people run and look in this direction. Overnight, this tall grass and shrub that was here was cut down at 5 a.m. the morning after the assassination. So when those six eyewitnesses who were guests at the Lorraine wake up and walk outside, it looks completely different. This is uh, in an in a, uh, alleged crime scene 
what? by wait, six people. Wait, someone came in. The Memphis Fire Department and Public Works cut and down. changed a crime scene? Completely, an alleged crime scene. Uh, this was completely Well, altered. I mean, regardless of which, it's well, one of the, it's the crime scene, well, like one way or the other. Where, where like, people, where more than one person has come forward and say, we saw action in this area. It was cut down at 5 a.m. Wow. Uh, the next day, that Friday. I want to thank Mr. Jones for sharing his time and expertise with us. And while our subsequent discussions will show why I politely disagree with his conclusions about James Earl Ray's culpability, I couldn't have asked for a better, more gracious host. I hope that our analysis will do justice to his point of view. Before we get to the overall analysis, though, we have a quick interjection or two about the points that Mr. Jones made in that last section of interview. Interjection one. We checked up on this thing about clearing out the brush under the boarding house window from which Ray fired the shot, or, if you prefer Jower's version, where Clark hid in the tall grass and fired the killing shot. In point of fact, author Gerald Posner, who we'll get to in just a moment, tracked the relevant information down. According to the contemporary Memphis newspapers, the brush-cutting order was issued by the Works Department of Memphis in August of 1968, months after the April assassination date, though a number of conspiracy-friendly books report this date incorrectly. A second point we want to contest here is the ballistics matching that Mr. Jones alluded to. He is absolutely correct that numerous tests attempting to match bullets fired from the rifle identified as the murder weapon with the bullet that killed Dr. King have proved inconclusive. But based on the testimony of experts, it might be an error to over-rotate on this issue. The person who first made headlines announcing that the markings didn't match was the judge on the case, Joe Brown. If that name sounds familiar, it's because your underemployed roommate used to watch a lot of him on afternoon TV. We're back with Judge Joe Brown. The defendant in this case just flat out denies everything he's accused of. He feels the plaintiff got the scabies from the dog she was sleeping with and doesn't know who took her purple crevassier tip bag. Let's get back to the case. Now, did you take their money? I did not take their money. In fact, no money was taken. These just lying. Back when Brown was a real judge, he found himself removed from the Ray case by the Court of Appeals because he continued to engage in a fact-finding mission and appeared to be biased toward Ray, as reported in a contemporary New York Times article. Which, based on the man's own later interviews, fair enough. I wound up being the last judge hearing the James Earl Ray matter. Did he, in fact, assassinate Dr. Martin Luther King? And had he not died and his local attorney not died in close succession, it would have been my finding that he was not the gunman. That Remington 760 Game Master they've got in the Civil Rights Museum is not the murder weapon. It's not even close. Meanwhile, the actual experts tasked with conducting the ballistics tests, both during the 1990s-era retrial attempt over which Brown presided, as well as the original 1968 investigation, rebutted the judge's assertions about bullet markings, noting those he referred to were irrelevant to the task of identifying the rifle. The only firm conclusions these experts drew were that the tests were inconclusive and that further tests would be irrelevant, as the rifle had already been fired too many times. And it appears the main reason that those tests ended up inconclusive is that the rifle bullet from the original shooting was severely misshapen due to the havoc it had wreaked inside of Dr. King's body before it was examined. Anyway, neither of these issues are layups for what we think is the correct Ray acted alone version of the case, but neither seems particularly significant regardless of your opinion. With that out of the way, let's get down to our full analysis, aided as always by the most expert guides we can find. 
There are many books written about the assassination, Ray, and his 30-year struggle to get his guilty plea overturned, but the best we've read are Hellhound on His Trail by Hamilton Sides and Killing the Dream by Gerald Posner. The former is a gripping narrative of Ray's bold, surprisingly effective efforts to elude capture, paired with a detailed look at the unbelievable detective work and painstaking analysis performed by the FBI as they gradually tracked him down. Posner's book, which also deals with the assassination, manhunt, and conviction, focuses more attention on Ray's subsequent denials of culpability, the numerous conspiracists who've come to his aid, the alternative explanations for the killing, and finally why none of those alternatives truly hold up to scrutiny. Anyone interested in this subject owes it to him or herself to pick up one or both. Don't worry, we'll also be hearing from diehard conspiracy loonies on the way. James Earl Ray escaped from a Missouri State penitentiary in 1967, eight years into a 20-year sentence he received for, essentially, being a career criminal. Or, as the greatest movie in the history of the world puts it, They got a name for people like you, hi. That name is called recidivism. Repeat offender. Not a pretty name, is it, hi? No, sir. That's one bonehead name, but that ain't me anymore. Unfortunately, while H.I. McDonough sought to change his ways, Ray showed no such growth after his escape, engaging in a peripatetic and frequently criminal life as he wandered the United States, buying a white Ford Mustang in Birmingham, Alabama, and traveling eventually to Mexico, where he used the name Eric Starvo Galt and attempted to set himself up as a pornographic filmmaker. Quick aside, numerous observers have noted that Ray's favorite pseudonym uses names that seem to be derived from the James Bond series. Starvo sounds a whole lot like the middle name of Ernst Stavro Blofeld, the gentleman spy's greatest foe. And from Ayn Rand's turgid, interminable political screeds masquerading as novels, the capitalist Superman whose disappearance initiates the action of Atlas Shrugged is named John Galt. Granted, this fact is not particularly germane to our subject, but that alias does sound like the sort of thing a teenage boy of that era might have chosen to style himself a rakish, daring, independent man of mystery. It would be like an escaped criminal today, hiding under the name Carl the Rock of Voldemort. From Mexico, Ray made his way to Los Angeles, where he did a number of unexpected things, including enrolling in dance lessons, taking a bartending course, and getting a nose job. But he spent the vast majority of his time working assiduously on behalf of the George Wallace for President campaign. You may recall George Wallace as the recalcitrant, segregationist former governor of Alabama whose 1968 campaign for the presidency galvanized white Southerners. And, to be fair, racists from other states, too. Who were sick and tired of blacks like Martin Luther King who didn't seem to know their place, as defined by galvanized white Southerners. We would like to offer all the patriotic Americans who, like Ray, worked hard to elect Wallace a heartfelt, if very belated, invitation to go fuck themselves. Indeed. Fortunately, of course, Wallace's candidacy went nowhere, but his work on the governor's campaign does a lot to support Ray's bona fides as a southern cracker racist of the First Order. Hampton Sides' book, which refers to Ray as Galt when relating his activities during this period, notes that it's at this time that his white supremacy seemed to really blossom. What Galt found most appealing about Wallace was the governor's stance as an unapologetic segregationist. Galt's politics were composed of many inchoate gripes and grievances. By 1967, Galt had begun to gravitate towards stark positions on racial politics. He became intrigued by Ian Smith's white supremacist regime in Rhodesia. The idea of immigrating there appealed to him. Galt was apparently also an occasional reader of The Thunderbolt, a hate rag published out of Birmingham by the virulently segregationist National States Rights Party. 
Ray, as Galt, left Los Angeles in late March and Sides painstakingly details how he stalked King's movements, scoping out his home and church in Atlanta, following him from town to town, and basically doing a bunch of stuff that an escaped criminal who wasn't intent on hunting down and assassinating the civil rights leader probably wouldn't do. On March 30th, Ray traveled to Birmingham and purchased a rifle and scope. Again, an odd buy for a man who had never been a hunter before. On April 1st, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution published King's plans to return to Memphis. The next day, Ray, who never missed his daily newspaper, picked up and drove to Tennessee, which again is a pretty big coincidence if he's not hunting King, as many conspiracists maintain. On the afternoon of April 4th, Ray arrived at Bessie Brewer's rooming house, a place Sides describes as a half-step up from homelessness, a haven for invalids, derelicts, mysterious transients, riverboat workers, and small-time crooks, roomy-eyed souls who favored wife-beater t-shirts and off-brand hooch, mostly white middle-aged men. They blew in on wisps of despair from Central Station. On the first floor of the building was a beer, biscuit, and barbecue joint called Jim's Grill. Jim's will become important when we discuss the various conspiracy theories. Ray's checking himself into this shithole, which is, to be fair, pretty much in line with the sorts of shitholes he had frequented throughout his misbegotten life, features another pretty big dink. to wit, Sides notes that the bathroom in the boarding house gave him a direct yet largely concealed shot at King's room at the Lorraine. And an easy one at that. Through the magnification of a seven-time scope, a man standing on the balcony would appear to be only 30 feet away. At 6.01 p.m., someone fired a shot from the rooming house window that killed Dr. King. (coughs) James Ray. Minutes later, the police found a discarded bedspread containing a rifle of the caliber used to kill King, along with clothing and other ephemera, apparently discarded impulsively by the shooter, who was worried that carrying a bundle under his arms as he approached nearby police on the way to his getaway car would raise suspicions. This, of course, is one of the topics conspiracy theorists love to attack. For example, this quote from the confusingly titled MLK Beyond a Question of Conspiracy, I don't know, by prolific Amazon conspiracy loon Ralph Thomas. A duffel bag was found two minutes after the assassination. If Ray was really fleeing the scene of the assassination after murdering Martin Luther King, why would he leave his duffel bag with his own cloths and a rifle with his fingerprints on it in a duffel bag laying on the sidewalk in front of a store near the entrance of the rooming house? So, between the fact that it wasn't a duffel bag, but rather a bedspread, and the fact that Mr. Thomas did, in fact, write cloths instead of clothes in his otherwise, no doubt, airtight manuscript, he does bring up an important point that, unfortunately, does not support his assertions. In point of fact, ditching the bundle was vital to the assassin's getaway, given the police presence at that moment, and how unbelievably suspicious he looked hauling that crap under his arms as he hoofed it to the getaway car. Oh, and are you willing to guess whose fingerprints were found on the rifle, and who signed for the dry-cleaning tags that were found in the clothes? Anyway, in spite of hastily thrown together roadblocks and other police tactics, the shooter was not captured, but escaped Memphis. Sides' book, from this point, offers gripping twin narratives of Ray's increasingly desperate efforts to avoid capture, first in Canada, then in Europe, before he was apprehended at Heathrow Airport, and of the FBI's all-out nationwide manhunt for King's killer. It seems to us that, by the time he's finally apprehended, most readers will have few doubts that the FBI had found its man in James Earl Ray. But we will attempt to address some of the questions that Ryan Jones, members of the King family, and many far less honest and reputable people have raised, including suggestions that James Earl Ray was either innocent or that he was merely a small part of a much larger conspiracy. Passports and Money One of the more popular objections to Ray's guilt has to do with how successful he was in evading capture. 
On the run for two months while every Western police agency was after him, he managed to travel to Canada, pay for his room and board, fly to London, then to Portugal, return to London, and then get caught at Heathrow Airport trying to catch another flight, this time to Brussels. From this, conspiracists raised two questions. How did he manage to get the Canadian passport he was caught with? And? How did he have enough money to travel so far and stay on the run for so long? In essence, these questions are aimed at the fact that Ray was no one's idea of a master criminal. Penny anti-burglary, mail fraud, and armed robberies were more his speed, and none of his past exploits indicated he was capable of complex, sustained deceptions. So, how did he pull off the super-spy shit with the passports? Well, as Sides relates, Ray, who had traveled to Canada earlier in his post-prison break perambulations, had gotten some useful tips from his criminal associates on what he'd need to obtain a fake Canadian passport. And the reason he thought Canada would be his best bet for getting his hands on said fake passport was because obtaining one at that time was notoriously easy. Numerous articles online detail the long history of criminals using forged or falsely obtained Canadian documents to travel internationally without tipping off the proper authorities. An article on the CBC website quotes contemporary Swedish newspapers. For Russian spies and American gangsters, the Canadian passport was the travel document of choice. Ray did evince some ingenuity in deciding whose name to use. He visited the reading room of the Toronto Telegram newspaper, looking up the names of babies born around 1930, that is, Canadian males nearly his age. He eventually settled on two as his focus, Paul Bridgman and Ramon Snaid. He discovered Snaid had never applied for a passport and thus was an excellent target for forgery. From there, he simply depended on an inefficient and overworked Canadian passport system to deliver the documents he needed. Incidentally, in our interview, Ryan Jones mentioned that Ray possessed five passports. Our research indicates he had two. On the first one he applied for, he misspelled his name as Ramon Snea and had to apply for another one. We're not clear on the other three Mr. Jones referred to, but regardless, even for someone of Ray's limited talents, his method for acquiring forged travel papers seems pretty straightforward. But why did he go to Europe in the first place? Great question, and the answer doesn't redound to Ray's benefit. It turns out Europe was just a pit stop on the way to his true destination, Africa. Wait, you're saying the man who shot Martin Luther King thought he could disappear in Africa? Yes, indeed. Sides quotes Ray as saying, I thought I was going to get away. I thought I was going to go to Africa, and those folks wouldn't send me back. Sides continues, Ray wasn't exactly sure what he would do once he got there, but the idea of Rhodesia burned in his imagination the promise of sanctuary and refuge, the possibility of living in a society where people understood. Wait, understood what? And where's Rhodesia? Oh, it's not called that anymore. It's Zimbabwe now. But at the time Ray was on the run, it was one of the only remaining avowedly white supremacist regimes in the world. Probably a coincidence, right? The money and Raoul. In order to address the money question, we have to talk about Raoul. In the days immediately after his guilty plea and throughout the rest of his life, Ray would claim that he had been working with a mysterious government agent he knew only as Raoul, and that at key moments when he had purchased the rifle, as well as the white Mustang he had been driving, for example, he was acting on Raoul's orders. Inquire. And you were going back to, uh, to pick up this man that you say is Raoul? Is no, way? I just waiting the car back. When you met Raoul, you, did you, you didn't know any other name for him? That's the name that he said was his, and that, that's all you ever knew. Yeah, I guess not. Mm -hmm. And you met him where? Canada. Up in Canada. Yeah. These were all aliases, uh, I assume. Uh, uh, you don't think Raoul was a real name at all, then? Huh? No, I've got some freedom of information papers in there saying there's Raoul, San Diego or something, New Orleans is supposed to be a 
him, but uh, I don't have the FBI. That's material from the FBI files, but I don't have no... Uh, it was this figure who fired the killing shot and who was also the source of funds that Ray lived on after his escape from prison. Now, there are numerous problems with the Raul story, but the most significant is the fact that Ray constantly changed almost every detail of it. As Gerald Posner ably recounts in Killing the Dream, Ray lied almost reflexively about everything throughout his life, trying on new versions of reality whenever he thought they might benefit him in any way. One of the most amazing, albeit not technically Raul-related, examples of Ray's lies occurred when he was called on to testify before the Committee on Assassinations in the mid-70s. As part of his testimony, Ray firmly stated he was not in Atlanta where he was living on April 1st, the day that the paper printed King's plans to return to Memphis. The government contended, and Ray had agreed as part of his initial guilty plea, that he had been present that day, leading him to read the story which in turn triggered his return to Memphis, before the committee he was now denying that whole chain of events. Presented with receipts from a laundromat confirming he had dropped off his clothes on the 1st, Ray insisted the document must have been forged. The committee then presented Ray with a 200-page logbook from the laundry. Posner details what happened. The book covered nearly 10,000 laundry orders. There were no blank or missing pages, and Ray's entry was almost squarely in the middle of one. Because of the way it was created, with various handwritten entries for thousands of laundry jobs, it was virtually tamper-proof. This proved a bit of a pickle for Ray, who earlier in his testimony had stated that, should the committee succeed in proving he was in Atlanta on April 1st, he would just take responsibility for the King case here on TV. Jesus, that's awkward. Not that he stood by his word, of course, or any of his other words, especially when it came to Raoul. The sheer number of different ways that Ray spun and respun the tale of the mysterious agent he blamed for the murder he had himself committed is bewildering. And he would change them at the drop of a hat. For example, Posner notes that when Ray learned there were witnesses who saw only him at a key point in one of his stories when he claimed to have been accompanied by Raoul, he suddenly admitted that story was a joke, without, of course, giving an inch on the validity of the rest of his Raoul tales. To be fair, Ray came by his lying, honestly? His father George was such a dedicated prevaricator that he wouldn't even stick to one name, besides again. As he dabbled in petty crimes and as he drifted from job to job, railroad brakeman, farmer, John Collar, he'd kept his identity deliberately fungible, the better to confuse the taxman and escape the clutches of creditors and landlords and the law. His policy of existential vagueness had confused the kids too, so much so that some of them were adults before they knew their true names. When investigators caught up to him during the manhunt, George Ray opined that the big mistake his son had made was failing to heed his constant advice. That the little guy can't win, that the cards are stacked against him, that the best course is to keep your identity murky and aim low. So it's no surprise that Ray lied like a rug, his whole family did. But how did he obtain all of the money that he lived off of for more than a year and used to pay for his international travels? Investigators have identified a number of possibilities, including allegations that he brought a significant amount of pot back from Mexico with him with the aim of selling it. The House Select Committee didn't buy this explanation, but they found an even better one, establishing the likelihood that Ray and his brothers robbed a bank in Alton, Illinois, netting over nine grand, which went a long way in 1968, and which matches nicely to independent estimates of Ray's expenditures during that period. Moreover, the committee pieced the story together, at least partially by tracing Ray's Raoul stories, and realizing Ray was using them as a cover to avoid incriminating his siblings claiming a meeting with Raoul at the times and places when, in reality, he likely met with one of his brothers to collect another portion of his ill-gotten bank heist gains. None of this dissuaded Ray from the Raoul story, 
and his parade of lawyers, some incompetent, some virulently racist, and some the most credulous sort of conspiracy theorists, helped him keep it alive. The nadir of this horseshit was when they managed to find a guy named Raoul, albeit with a different spelling, who vaguely fit the swarthy physical description Ray had dreamed up for his phantom excuse man. Sensing blood in the water, Ray pounced, and his lawyers harassed this poor guy and his family endlessly in spite of several key facts. Like this, Raoul hardly spoke English, had never been to any of the places where Ray claimed to have met him, had an unbroken record of attendance at the GM plant up north where he worked, was seen by many witnesses thousands of miles away from Memphis during the time when he was supposedly shooting Dr. King, etc., etc. It also didn't help Ray's credibility any that he constantly tried to escape from prison throughout the period he was arguing for his innocence. Once actually clambering over the walls at a Tennessee Hooskow, though he only wandered around in the woods surrounding the facility for three days before he was caught by bloodhounds. The Jowers story. Finally, the tale that has probably convinced the largest number of reasonable people that Ray was innocent is the story of Lloyd Jowers, the owner of Jim's Grill, the shithole barbecue spot on the floor below Bessie Brewer's boarding house. For decades, Jowers had insisted he had nothing whatsoever to do with King's murder, but suddenly changed his mind during a 1993 ABC Primetime Live interview. Jowers ran Jim's Grill across from the Lorraine Motel and claimed another Memphis businessman, Frank Liberto, paid him $100,000 to contract a killer. What did Frank Liberto ask you to do? He asked me to handle uh, some money transaction hire someone to assassinate Dr. Martin Luther King. His original story to the authorities on the day of the assassination went like this. He was in the bar, heard the shot, ran to check the kitchen and back, and returned to find the Mustang that had been in front of his place was gone. He noticed because it had parked in his accustomed space. There were a few other details, but that was essentially it. However, others put him into the assassination from the earliest days. Betty Spates, a 17-year-old African-American girl who was having an affair with Jowers at the time, claimed from the beginning that she saw him in the kitchen holding a rifle seconds after she heard the shot. But the next year, she recanted her story, admitting that she had fabricated it to hurt Jowers. And then, in the 90s, she unrecanted again. It was during this second unrecantation period when Jowers began to cop to Spates' story, thus leading to the previously quoted interview. Jowers had also, as it turned out, told Ray's latest round of lawyers that he had not only hired the man who killed King, a local African-American laborer named Frank Holt, but also the man who killed Holt to keep him quiet. Side note, one awkward point for Jowers' claim. When reporters in the mid-90s heard about these allegations, they managed to locate the very much alive Frank Holt in Orlando. He was apparently both confused and outraged to hear the rumors Jowers had spread about him. As Posner notes, this was no difficulty at all for Jowers, who simply claimed he was lying about Holt and the real shooter was a white guy named Earl Clark, but the rest of the story was totally true, y'all. The main reason Jowers ended up being important to the story at all is King's family came to embrace one of his several versions of events, and it in fact became the cornerstone of the King v. Jowers case, a 1999 Memphis civil trial in which a jury found Jowers guilty and assessed him the token fine the King family had asked for, Let's get a quick check-in from the conspiracy nuts side of this argument. Compliments, once again, of the Illuminati's greatest hits. When the civil trial concluded, a jury found local, state, and federal government agencies and Jowers guilty of conspiring to assassinate Dr. Martin Luther King. But you didn't hear about this, right? The jury's verdict should have been blasted all over the Illuminati-controlled corporate media, but it wasn't. He's totally right. And we here at The Strain couldn't be prouder to continue this long, distinguished tradition of covering up crimes for the Illuminati. But seriously, there's a reason why this jury voted the way it did. 
It can sometimes be easier to convince a civil jury whose burden of proof is significantly lower than in a criminal trial, and whose view of the case can be influenced by the efficacy of each side's attorneys, than it is to convince professional investigators. To wit, when the Justice Department evaluated this same story, they found it wasn't credible, noting that they, unlike the jury, had access to information about Jowers' many inconsistent claims, the inconsistent statements of several critical witnesses, and information that contradicted and undermined the trial evidence. Jowers's isn't the only extant theory that would purport to exonerate Ray, who died back in 1998. Legendary comedian and activist Dick Gregory, for example, believes local African-American ministers conspired to assassinate King, and furthermore insists that he has smoking gun proof from the mouth of one of these very Judases. But what you're picking a witness now is the, the man who came by to get King to take him to dinner. And 30 years later at a press conference, he slipped because God do baffle your mind sometimes. Three preachers in a room, Abernathy, King, and Kyle. And we spent that last hour together in room 306 at the Lorraine Motel. The press is always curious and writers, what went on? What did you talk about? I say, we just talked preacher talk. What preachers talk about when they get together? Y'all pay your attention to what you're fixing to hear now. About a quarter of six, we walked on the balcony, and he was talking to people in the courtyard. He stood here, and I stood there. Only as I moved away, so he could have a clear shot, the shot rang out. Thank you. I turned around, and then back on the balcony. Did you catch that? He said, Only as I moved away, so he could have a clear shot, the shot rang out. If you just declaim those words, they may seem sinister, or at least confusing. But in context, it's blindingly obvious that Billy Kyles, the preacher whose audio was captured here, was simply noting what the assassin must have been thinking in that moment, i.e. That other guy moved. Now I have a clear shot. This is something we'll come back to in the JFK episode that follows this one. Investigators are limited in their approach to dealing with evidence, including all of the confusions and contradictions that can imply. Conspiracy theorists, on the other hand, are free to pick and choose whatever supports their case. And only those items that support their case. And to carefully select those items not only from relevant testimony and physical evidence at the time when the crime occurred, but from anything anyone involved has ever said even in passing at any time afterward. Mr. Gregory's potentially slanderous assertions aside, it would actually be more remarkable if no eyewitnesses ever inadvertently said something confusing or suspicious in the decades after the assassination. I mean, people, we have a literal script in front of us when we make these shows, and we still fuck up on the regular. But before we can leave this topic behind, we have to address the one reasonably compelling theory that could make one think of a conspiracy, kinda, if you squint. And that theory relates to this. A number of different racist fucks had, for real, no question, put tens of thousands of dollars in bounties on MLK's head around the time of the assassination. As the report for the House Committee on Assassinations noted in the 1970s, an offer on Dr. King's life that existed in St. Louis in late 1966 or early 1967 was brought to the attention of the committee in March 1978 by the FBI. The report goes on to note that an FBI informant named Russell Byers provided credible evidence that he had been offered $50,000 for killing or arranging the murder of King by John Sutherland, a St. Louis patent attorney who claimed that he represented a secret Southern organization that had plenty of money. Byers went on to publicize this offer through various underworld channels, and it's this bounty that eventually led the House Committee to conclude that there was, in fact, a conspiracy in the murder of Dr. King along very specific, limited lines. 
but slow down anybody who would assert Ray's innocence. Check out this first quote. James Earl Ray was the assassin of Dr. King, and Raoul, as described by Ray, did not exist. The committee found that Ray acted with full knowledge of what he was doing in the murder of Dr. King. So what conspiracy were they referring to? Well, taking the evidence that Ray and his brothers held up at least one and maybe several banks, and noting that Ray could easily have heard of the Sutherland bounty offer through his criminal siblings, they suggested that the motivation of a fat paycheck had pushed Ray into a new criminal enterprise, murder for hire, whether alone or with his brothers. But note that even if we grant this story, all we're hearing is that some racist dickbags put out a hit on King and Ray answered the call, apparently believing he could collect once he landed in Rhodesia. There's no suggestion that Sutherland and co. actually spoke with Ray, or helped him plan, or aided his escape. So, under these very limited circumstances, we are willing, once again, to ring the justified conspiracy alarm. Christ, that's irritating. We need to have someone take a look at that thing. And so we move to our final topic, the June 5th, 1968 shooting of Robert F. Kennedy. RFK had, serving as his brother's attorney general, in the early 60s brought the first set of truly effective prosecutions to bear against La Cosa Nostra in the U.S. This work, combined with his deliberately cultivated tough, brash persona, had also made plenty of enemies in his time. But the Bobby Kennedy who entered the presidential race in 1968 had grown a great deal in the years since his brother's death, crusading against the dire poverty that still racked communities throughout the United States and embracing both an anti-Vietnam war platform and a pro-civil rights stance. His stature had grown so powerfully that, on the night of MLK's assassination, he was perhaps the only white man in the country who was so embraced by grieving African Americans that his voice would be respected in the aftermath. I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. For those of you who are black and are tempted to fill with, be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people, I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. My favorite poem, my, my favorite poet was Aeschylus. He once wrote, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own day despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. And then, just two months later, minutes after his victory speech for the California Democratic primary, My thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. Thank you very much. 
he was suddenly gunned down in the kitchen of the Ambassador Hotel, where his campaign's victory party was still going on in the ballroom. Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? Is that possible? It's good. Is it possible, ladies and gentlemen? It is possible. He has. Not only Senator Kennedy. Oh, my God. Senator Kennedy has been shot. And another man, a Kennedy campaign manager, and possibly shot in the head. I am right here. Rafer Johnson has a hold of a man who apparently has fired the shot. That's it, Rafer. Get it. Get the gun, Rafer. Okay, now hold on to the guy. Hold on to him. Hold on to him, ladies and gentlemen. Hold him. Hold him. <coughs> we don't want another Oswald. This time, though, there was no nationwide manhunt. No need to painstakingly recreate the perambulations and interactions of the assassin in order to bring him to justice. The perpetrator in this case, a slight manic figure with the odd name Sirhan Sirhan, was caught almost literally red-handed. Tackled by author George Plimpton and former football player Rosie Greer at the scene of the crime, still reflexively pulling the trigger of his now-empty revolver over and over. While the immediate scene was chaos, at least this time there could be absolutely no question about the identity of the lone nut assassin, nor of the fact that he bore sole responsibility for the crime. Sirhan, it was quickly discovered, was a deeply disturbed loner without significant friendships or association, much like both Ray and Oswald. But again, unlike them, he was literally caught on scene with the weapon in hand, having shot Kennedy numerous times, including direct shots into his head in front of dozens of witnesses. As anyone could have foreseen, the prosecution was a layup. Sirhan only was saved from the gas chamber when California commuted all pre-existing death sentences to life imprisonment after an unrelated 1972 ruling. So, case closed. You're not fooling them, you know. Geez, can a fellow build a little dramatic tension? Okay, as Miss Spoiler Alert just implied, as far as conspiracy theorists go, there's never a closed case in a 20th century American political shooting. And so, very shortly, questions started bubbling up among various circles. In this case, though, many of those questions were actually legitimate. You're not going to do that alarm thing again, are you? No, 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 no. They're legitimate questions, but they don't amount to a justified conspiracy. For example, The LAPD, for seemingly no legitimate reason, destroyed numerous pieces of evidence from the crime scene once the trial was concluded. This included several pieces of the hotel kitchen's door frames, in which one of the officers responding on the scene had noted bullet holes. These bullet holes were vital, the theorists asserted, because all of the shots fired by Sirhan's revolver were already accounted for by wounds on Kennedy and other injured bystanders. None of those bullets could possibly have caused the holes in question, and so therefore police had destroyed vital evidence that a second gun had been fired during the assassination. There was also the extremely circumspect and thorough autopsy by Dr. Thomas Noguchi, which definitely revealed that RFK had been shot in the back of his head at point-blank range by his assailant. However, dozens of witnesses testified that Sirhan's gun was in front of Kennedy's body when the shooting started. Wait, is that true? If so, I think you might need to fire up that alarm again. This sounds pretty plausible. We'll get to it in a moment. What else? Numerous witnesses claimed they saw Sirhan in the crowd before the shooting, accompanied by a mysterious woman in a polka dot dress. And then a Kennedy volunteer claimed to have heard this woman say something like, We shot him. We shot him. Wow. Okay. There are a lot of potentially strong allegations to deal with here. Looks like we'll need to roll up our sleeves and give Bobby Kennedy's murder the full paranoid strain treatment. <laughs> Thank you.
wait, what the hell was that? Holy shit, somebody already beat us to it. Ladies and gentlemen, as soon as you finish this episode, we encourage you to listen to the complete run of a spectacularly good, incredibly thorough, multi-part podcast devoted specifically to conspiracy theories surrounding RFK's death, the RFK tapes. We're not getting a kickback here. We just really like the show. Reporter and host of the equally great podcast Crime Town, Zach Stewart Pontier, was intrigued by the theories of an assassination researcher named William Kleber, who has spent decades working on this topic, had written the book Shadow Play about his theories on the assassins and motives, and had accumulated an incredible library of tapes from the assassination and subsequent investigations. Those who, like us, evaluate conspiracist claims with a jaded and gimlet eye may be frustrated by Pontier's seemingly uncritical acceptance of Kleber's claims throughout the first several episodes. Don't worry, the skepticism comes roaring back in the final shows. Anyway, this single-topic effort covers RFK conspiracies with a breadth and depth we could never hope to match, and so we hand you off to them for the heavy lifting on the topics Dana outlined previously. In other words, you're not going to address those allegations I just mentioned. No. I mean, we're going to touch on some, but not all. But I promise the answers are there for you in the RFK Tapes podcast. So we're not going deep on RFK, but we do have a few observations. First is that, when you're listening to Kleber on the show, you should keep in mind that however out there his theories get, he's definitely one of the sanest and most responsible of all assassination conspiracists. For a more standard example of the form, we quote briefly from author Frank White's, again, responsibly titled, The Illuminati's Greatest Hits, on the subject of the senator's shooting. Sirhan Sirhan was convicted of the killing of Bobby Kennedy. But unofficially, who benefited from Bobby Kennedy's death? Just like his brother John... Bobby was straying from the Illuminati's main ideology, the idea of a new world order. The CIA took matters into their own hands, and with the help of Mossad, the Israeli National Intelligence Agency, groomed the perfect scapegoat for the task. They found a young, impressionable man who was instilled with a deep hatred of Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy's campaign headquarters had been infiltrated by a sympathizer of the Shah of Iran, and therefore Mossad and the CIA knew exactly where and when to strike. Sirhan Sirhan was told that Bobby Kennedy was about to send 50 bombers over Israel to take care of the Middle East problems, and the young Palestinian took it as an affront to his nation. He was given a shotgun, and he killed Bobby Kennedy so he would not send bombers over Israel and Palestine. Virtually every word of that is wrong and insane, including the fact that Kennedy was assassinated by a pistol, not a shotgun. No conspiracist even alleges there was a shotgun. Jesus, man, do some research. Secondly, we want to talk about a third major figure in the RFK tapes, in addition to Zach and Bill. That person is Dan Moldea, a journalist with a fascinating history on this topic. He started out as a conspiracy believer, and in fact sold the idea for his book, The Killing of Robert Kennedy, to the publisher based on his assertion that he would prove definitively not only that there was a conspiracy, but that he had found the guy responsible. That was longtime conspiracy suspect Thane Eugene Caesar, the security guard who was next to RFK at the moment Sirhan shot him and who also happened to be a reactionary and Walls for President supporter. Moldea's pitch called for him to break Caesar down through in-person interviews based on the evidence he'd accumulated, and then published the book complete with the real assassin's confession to close the matter once and for all. Well, he indeed wrote the book, and everything but the last chapter seems to point in the original direction. He builds up a careful case for all of the issues with the official narrative, point-blank bullet wounds, proved by autopsy, polka dot dress lady, etc., but then in the final section, he reveals that, surprisingly, he has come to the conclusion that neither Caesar nor anyone else but Sirhan was responsible for the crime, but that the official story of how the bullets hit Kennedy wasn't true either. 
You should really check out Moldea's book and the episodes of the RFK tapes where he's featured, but suffice it to say that he cleanly explains everything, including the phantom bullet holes we mentioned earlier. His answer. They weren't bullet holes, and the cop who identified them as such was a patrolman who had no experience with crime scene investigation, and his misidentification was never rechecked by experts because the Sirhan case was seen as so open and shot. Moldea's compelling version has Sirhan lunging toward Kennedy from the senator's front right, firing wildly. As Kennedy naturally ducked and turned away from his assailant, Sirhan's forward motion made it possible for him to shoot the senator point-blank in the back of the head, as indicated by the autopsy. As an explanation, it makes perfect sense, and fits with all of the incontestable evidence. As Moldea proudly, but appropriately, notes, Police solved the murder, I solved the case because I showed how the police errors led to people like us believing that there were two guns in that room. Okay, no. So anyway, if you're into RFK conspiracies, do the homework we assigned above. We think you'll thoroughly enjoy both the podcast and Moldea's book. One final note before we move on. Moldea also wrote a book about the JFK assassination, the topic of our next show. But in that one, he came down on the side of the conspiracists. Specifically, he believes the shooting was a mafia hit. We'll explore that assertion, along with a horde of others, next time. The final conspiracist point we want to contend with here is the suggestion that, while Sirhan certainly was one of the shooters in that room, again, they baselessly suggest that there was at least one other assassin. The only reason he was there was mind control. But we're going to handle that topic in our new segment, The Paranoid Strain Goes to the Movies. And now, from the annals of Tinseltown, The Paranoid Strain Goes to the Movies. The sixth episode of the RFK tapes is, for us, the most frustrating. In it, Bill Kleber waxes rhapsodic about his claims that Sirhan Sirhan was the victim of a mind-control plot designed to turn him into the perfect killer and or patsy. Dr. Diamond would put Sirhan under hypnosis in the cell, give him a suggestion under hypnosis. This is Robert Kaiser, a journalist who was in the room when defense and prosecution psychiatrists hypnotized Sirhan Sirhan. We all knew that he'd been programmed. And, and neither Diamond nor the attorneys would listen to me for a moment when I suggested that he may have been hypnotized and programmed to kill Kennedy under a hypnotic state. So for, for like this to be true, for Sirhan to be a hypno-programmed assassin, we have to believe that there's this secret hospital where they're doing all these mind-control experiments and the girl in the book about dress was this handler, mm -hmm. that the bartender is somehow in on it, that he, when Sirhan goes into this hypno-program state, then the real assassin shoots Kennedy in the back and puts the gun away and leaves. The girl then goes running through the ambassador hotel yelling, we shot him, we shot him. But then you also have to imagine that the LAPD is somehow involved in this like how high up does the cover-up go I mean, it's just a lot it's a lot of dot that's a lot of dots to connect yes <laughs> all all of those things could be true to synopsize sirhan is very easy to hypnotize he would readily follow orders issued when he was hypnotized including getting into a gun firing stance he ordered texts and audio tapes from the Rosicrucians, a semi-secret society whose members believe they possess wisdom that has been passed down by the ancients, and whom we will cover when we get around to handling the whole Illuminati, Masons, Knights, Templar thing down the road, that were designed to create a sort of meditative self-hypnosis state. And he claimed, in fact still claims, not to remember shooting Kennedy. 
A more skeptical observer might note that these points don't really indicate anything at all, aside from the fact that Sirhan was kind of wackadoo. But Kleber and others, including Sirhan's current defense team, maintain that they serve as proof that he was hypno-programmed. What's hypno-programming, you ask? Well, in reality, it's basically made up. But in fiction, it will be familiar to anyone who's seen the paranoid classic The Manchurian Candidate. In that tale, a group of American GIs are captured during the Korean War and subjected to advanced communist brainwashing techniques designed to put them under the complete control of their new handlers without their knowledge, and without arousing the suspicions of any of their family or friends. These men are then allowed to escape, with the aim being that one of them, the son of a prominent senator, will serve as a pre-programmed assassin to further the cabal's desires upon his return to the U.S. What Kleber and the other less-than-skeptical observers believe is that this sort of mind control is indeed something that shadowy entities and governments can accomplish at will, given the right subject. And this, they allege, explains why Sirhan doesn't remember the shooting. You know, since it's not possible that he's, uh, you know, what's the word? Lying. It explains all kinds of weird stuff that Sirhan did when under hypnosis after the attack. And according to them, it helps to explain away certain problems. Like the fact that Sirhan had written... Kennedy must die about a billion times in his notebooks prior to the assassination. A police searched the premises this morning, found the notebook in the suspect's room, mentioning the, quote, necessity to assassinate Senator Kennedy. In which he iterated and reiterated, RFK must die, RF Kennedy must be assassinated, assassinated, assassinated. Sir Han had written at the top of one page, My determination to eliminate RFK is becoming more the more of an unshakable obsession. Yes, that's a direct quote from Sirhan's notebooks. Of course he did, they say. The only reason he wrote those nasty things is because the mean old hypno-programmers done programmed him to do so. Well, sure, that explains it. But it doesn't mean the explanation has any bearing on reality. The seemingly insurmountable problem for fans of this nonsense is that it has never, ever been demonstrated to work as they describe anywhere, ever and ever, amen. The psychological literature indicates you can convince someone who wants to do something already to go over the edge and actually do the thing they're contemplating. For example, you might theoretically be able to get someone who's already obsessed with violent fantasies to enact those fantasies in real life. But that doesn't help conspiracists who want to use all-powerful mind control as the perfect explanation for why Sirhan is completely blameless. After all, they have absolutely zero evidence that anyone actually brainwashed Sirhan. Not a shred. So a scenario where somebody secretly and again without evidence, hypnotized Sirhan to convince him to take an action he already wanted to take on his own doesn't really get them anywhere. That's just adding an unnecessary someone to the accepted story for no particular reason. They need for Sirhan to be a total innocent, an easily hypnotized dupe whose only reason for appearing in that kitchen was to distract from the real shooters, because then they can assign some grand conspiracy and meaning to the killing rather than accepting that it was, yet again, one crazy person capitalizing on insufficient security procedures to yet again, gun down an important figure, which is what, in reality, happened. You know, these guys are always insisting that the fact that so many lone nuts were responsible for assassinations serves as proof that all of these stories are fake, that none could have possibly have acted alone, and that each and every one must have been set up by more powerful forces. When a much more sensible explanation for each attack after Oswald's is simply that each new anonymous loser nobody who wanted to make a name for himself saw how relatively easy it was for that piece of shit Oswald to do so and simply followed a similar, simple plan. 
Anyway, as we've seen, there's no evidence for this hypnoprogramming allegation. Yet people like Bill Kleber have the unmitigated gall to suggest that this explanation fits the Occam's razor test better than the official explanation. You know Occam's razor? Tell me. Okay. Um, uh, in general, usually the simplest explanation for something is more often than not the right explanation. Um, and so how does that relate to mind control? Because that would seem to be the most Baroque, the most ornate, elaborate uh, explanation for things. Well, I have problems uh, with the, the, the simple, simple explanations because um, when I look at the evidence, uh, I see very compelling evidence that two guns were firing. I see compelling evidence that Sirhan was in the company of people that night. Uh, and I find compelling evidence that Sirhan is being sincere when he says he doesn't remember the crime. Um, now, I have trouble putting those three facts together and coming up with a simple explanation. This is akin to saying that the simplest explanation for climate change is that the government is using the harp station and chemtrails to heat up the weather in order to convince Americans to give up their freedoms to one world government. Which, don't kid yourself, people definitely believe. See episode six. Yes, it's simple in that you can say it in a few words, but that's not what Occam's razor requires. Each of the things you're trying to suggest within your explanations need themselves to be simple in order to make yours the simplest and thus the most likely explanation. So waving your hands in the direction of something you call total hypnoprogramming and then pointing to extremely shaky evidence to prove that's actually a thing won't cut it. You may recall that we covered the government's extensive, almost universally appalling efforts to create effective long-term mind control in our false flag episode. And while the CIA's MKUltra program is indeed responsible for a wide range of crimes and human rights violations made in the name of what you might call hypnoprogramming, there remains essentially no evidence that they, or the Soviets, or Chinese, or North Koreans, or anyone else, ever succeeded outside the bounds of fiction. As further quote-unquote evidence, Kleber and others point to the work of one CIA psychopath named Morse Allen, whose story is detailed in a 1979 book called The Search for the Manchurian Candidate by John Marks. RFK Tapes host Zach Stewart Pontier quotes from the book here. Morse Allen decided to take his hypnosis studies further, right into his own office. He asked young CIA secretaries to stay after work and ran them through the hypnotic paces. He had secretaries steal secret files and pass them on to total strangers, thus violating the most basic CIA security rules. He got them to steal from each other and to start fires. On February 19, 1954, Morris Allen simulated the ultimate experiment in hypnosis, the creation of a Manchurian candidate or programmed assassin. Allen's, quote, victim was a secretary whom he put into a deep trance and told to keep sleeping until he ordered otherwise. He then hypnotized a second secretary and told her that if she could not wake up her friend, quote, her rage would be so great that she would not hesitate to kill. Allen left a pistol nearby, which the secretary had no way of knowing was unloaded. Even though she had earlier expressed a fear of firearms of any kind, she picked up the gun and shot her sleeping friend. After Allen brought the killer out of her trance, she had apparent amnesia for the event, denying she would ever shoot anyone. Anyone who's familiar with the scientific method will immediately find holes in this story. There were no scientific controls in place, and there's no reason to think that the subjects were truly programmed rather than trying to fulfill a role that they inferred their superior would like them to execute. And finally, we have only Allen's account, not those of any skeptical or detached third-party observers. And to their credit, neither the book's author nor even crazy old Morse Allen himself 
come to the conclusions that Kleber and co. do. In fact, if you read the very next lines of the book, literally the next words that appear after the excerpt that Pontier just read, you'll see as much. With this experiment, Morse Allen took the testing as far as he could in a make-believe basis, but he was neither satisfied nor convinced that hypnosis would produce such spectacular results in an operational setting. All he felt he had proved was that an impressionable young volunteer would accept a command from a legitimate authority figure to take an action she may have sensed would not end in tragedy. She presumably trusted the CIA enough as an institution and Morse Allen as an individual to believe he would not let her do anything wrong. The experimental setting, in effect, legitimated her behavior and prevented it from being truly antisocial. X fucking exactly. And again, Pontier doesn't end up buying this horseshit by the end of the series, which is good for our blood pressure, if nothing else. So total mind control isn't really a thing. Though, of course, behavioral manipulation definitely is in a limited sense. See Facebook for literally innumerable examples. But as noted before, the movie The Manchurian Candidate is definitely a thing. And in its 1962 original, it's a very good thing. It's also remarkable that it was released when it was, a full year before assassinations would unfortunately become the subject of a national obsession. And of course, its inadvertent prescience, along with its incredibly claustrophobic and obsessive feel, has made it a lodestar for conspiracists ever since. The movie is filled with wonderful grotesque moments, with the hypno-mind control process related via flashback as our hero, Bennett Marco, Frank Sinatra in one of his better dramatic turns, experiences nightmare visions of his time in captivity. These scenes veer rapidly from horror to farce, as we see the mind-controlled prisoners are, in reality, being examined like lab rats by a room full of calculating Russian, Chinese, and Korean Politburo functionaries. But we also see what the men have been programmed to themselves see, which is that they're instead appearing before a group of little old ladies, the kind you would see in a small town's rotary club. I am sure you've all heard the old wives' tale that no hypnotized subject may be forced to do that which is repellent to his moral nature, whatever that may be. Nonsense, of course. Tell me, Raymond, have you ever killed anyone? No, ma'am. Not even in combat? In combat? Yes, ma'am, I think so. <laughs> of course you have, Raymond. Raymond has been a crack shot since childhood. Marvelous outlet for his aggressions. The best moments of black comedy come when these little old ladies start commanding awful acts, including at one point the cold-blooded murder of one of the G.I.'s companions who is admonished to sit calmly as he is strangled. And because our fictional mind control is so total, he of course obeys. Now then, Raymond, take this scarf and strangle Ed Mavoli uh, to death. Yes, ma'am. Hey, Sarge, cut it up. <laughs> quiet, Ed, please. Now you just sit there quietly and cooperate. Yes, ma'am. And then, because apparently one example wasn't sufficient, our brainwashed future assassin follows orders to shoot another young soldier directly in his smiling face. Raymond, who is that? Little fellow sitting next to the captain. That's Bobby Lembeck. Our mascot, I guess you'd call him. Doesn't look old enough to be in your army. I guess he isn't, but there he is, ma'am. Shoot Bobby Raymond. Through the forehead. Yes, ma'am. The evil genius scientist responsible for all of this absolute mind control assures us on a number of occasions that his work is foolproof. 
Do you realize, comrade, the implications of the weapon that has been placed at your disposal? Normally conditioned American who's been trained to kill and then to have no memory of having killed. Without memory of his deed, he cannot possibly feel guilt. Nor will he, of course, have any reason to fear being caught. And having been relieved of those uniquely American symptoms, guilt and fear, he cannot possibly give himself away. Ah, our Raymond will remain an outwardly normal, productive, sober and respected member of the community. And I should say, if properly used, entirely police-proof, his brain has not only been washed, as they say, it has been dry-cleaned. <laughs> But the thing is, in spite of all those who confidently assert that Sirhan, along with other supposed mind-controlled dupe murderers like John Hinckley, Mark David Chapman, etc., were completely controlled by outside forces, not to mention all the dollars and lives the world's governments wasted trying to achieve perfect control of another human's mind. There's still not a shred of evidence that anything like the total mental override proposed by the Manchurian candidate has, or even could possibly be, achieved. That's pretty much all we have to say about Manchurian, except that it's a fun watch, and we encourage you to check it out. But while we're on the topic, we would hate to end our big assassinations episode without a shout-out to another great conspiracy paranoia film, this one from 1974. The Parallax View is, if anything, an even more gripping movie than Manchurian, and every inch the product of the 70s, the most paranoid decade in recent American memory. Yes, we're including the present. Having witnessed the sudden, brutal murder of a prominent senator and presidential candidate... Ladies and gentlemen, uh, my wife Kit and I would thank you very much for inviting us here today, this Independence Day. Independence Day is very meaningful to me because sometimes I've been called too independent for my own good. With the assassin falling to his death before he can be questioned... Our hero, Joe Frady, a political reporter played by a top-of-his-game Warren Beatty, is approached three years later by a former colleague and girlfriend who insists there's a conspiracy behind the assassination. Frady dismisses her claims, but reconsiders when she is found dead shortly thereafter. From this point, the film becomes an ever-tightening race between Beatty's efforts to uncover the mysteries behind the sinister Parallax Corporation and the efforts by that company's flunkies to rid themselves of this irritating reporter. I tells you this movie's got everything, from a dead-on parody of the oracular pronouncements of the Warren Commission that finds no conspiracy in the senator's assassination. After nearly four months of investigation, followed by nine weeks of hearings, it is the conclusion of this committee that Senator Carroll was assassinated by Thomas Richard Linder. It is our further conclusion that he acted entirely alone motivated by a misguided sense of patriotism and a psychotic desire for public recognition. The committee wishes to emphasize that there is no evidence of any wider conspiracy. No evidence whatsoever. To a near-miss airplane bombing designed to silence a witness. Passengers disembarking from Globe Airlines Flight 451 will be met by airport security. We regret any further delay that may be caused by the necessary Though we'll note that they didn't actually have the budget to blow up the plane, so it happens off screen. And finally, it's all wrapped up in the stunning, sweeping vistas of prime, mid-70s, Beatty hairstyle. As an audience, we're showed from the start that in addition to the dead assailant, there was a second gunman, a la the supposed RFK conspiracy theories, so we're always one step ahead as Beatty works to prove a conspiracy without himself becoming the victim. 
Just as with Manchurian, we don't want to spoil anything about the ending, but suffice it to say, it's a downer, and hits just the right notes, expressing the zeitgeist of a nation reeling not only from the series of assassinations that marked the preceding decade, but from the loss of its remaining innocence thanks to then-contemporary revelations of petty burglary and third-rate cover-ups that made up the Watergate scandal. By making the big bad of the film a faceless corporation, the movie is able to combine anti-government sentiment with a growing discomfort at the increased power that multinationals were accumulating during the decade. Parallax is the sort of skillfully handled thriller that can leave you in a state where you'll believe, at least briefly, that the powers that be are capable of anything. Both of the films we've examined prove that imagined conspiracy theories can make for lively fiction, and our historical explanations have amply demonstrated that conspiracy has been a hallmark of many assassinations throughout time. Both of the films we've examined prove that imagined assassination conspiracies can make for lively fiction, and our historical explorations have amply demonstrated that conspiracy has been a hallmark of many assassinations throughout time. But when you weigh the evidence in the cases of MLK and RFK, Accusations of conspiracy don't add up to much. Just another variety of paranoid strain. This has been The Paranoid Strain. Join our Facebook page, visit our website, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and drop us a line, won't you, at theparanoidstrain at gmail.com. Special thanks go to Ryan Jones and the staff at the National Civil Rights Museum, which you really owe it to yourself to visit. Seriously. Thanks to Chad Number 3 for his incredible dual reads as Persian assassin and American Cold War scientist in our weird-ass opening bit. As always, we're grateful for the musical stylings of Daniel Arizona and the Paranoid Strain Orchestra, and indebted to the dulcet Northern European interjections of Ms. Dana Unicorn. Our all-new soundtrack was produced by South Fork Haas and recorded at Studio C in beautiful West Oakland. Final mixing assistance comes from Big Mucho, who also put together our super-duper website, and Willem UFO makes the pictures, which are so very pretty. I'm Fearful Jesuit. Thanks for listening. Next episode, we're going back, and to the left, and back, and to the left. And we're going to see why the JFK assassination has truly become the cornerstone of modern conspiracy thinking, even though it was all just Oswald. Until then, remember, the world is chaotic, but it's not out to get you. Or at least... Not you specifically.
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.